0: welcome to sorted humor podcast i am your host christian joseph um this episode is brought to you by forest hill racing company frc is a northern california based company who deals with motorcycles quads snowmobiles any kind of motorsports type stuff um you can get parts from them if you need parts. If you need uh, a technician, you need your bike worked on because it's broken, bring it to John Peters. Um, if you need to purchase a, uh, a motorcycle, uh, you can go there too. And There's a few out there right now. Also, we have a really good apparel line with the uh, Forest Hill Bridge as the main logo. So if you're from that area, it's a pretty badass shirt. I should know. I designed it um also this will be the first episode using our intro music this song for the intro music is uh off of my friend matt malley's solo album matt malley is a founding member of counting crows he was their bass player for i don't know 10 years or something like that um and he allowed me to use his song feel for my intro music so well, that's what I'm going to do. Um, hopefully in the near future, we're going to get mad on and shoot the shit and talk about the old days of touring the world with counting crows. Um, uh, but today's episode, my guest is Emily Faye Calhoun, uh, Emily Calhoun. Well, let me tell you something. She is very smart. She's one of the smartest people I know. And, uh. It was a really good conversation. I had a good time talking to her. She is a producer, writer, director, and she kind of just gave us a lowdown of her journey through the industry, you know, how she got to uh, where she is now, who is um, someone who just last year finished um, her first short which is, I think, like 18 minutes long. And it is um, a little small section of a feature that she wrote, which hopefully she'll be able to finish the feature sometime in the future. Um, But, yeah, it was a really good conversation. I I had a great time talking to her, catching up. We live about 30 minutes from each other and rarely see each other. Um, Yeah. Give it up for... Emily Faye Calhoun. Cool. Yeah. So I don't know where you want to start. I, I you know, we can start with uh, career. Wait, like you like that? You tell me. That sounds good to me. Okay. Start with. Uh, I don't know. Maybe just where you started off. Like with. Maybe after college, I don't know.
1: Oh gosh, with my whole
0: career Talking about the whole career leading up. Yeah, to where I mean, you got to the point where you, mm-hmm. you know, wrote and directed and produced your own short.
1: Oh, okay. Well,
0: um, where did it start? Okay, when did it start off?
1: Yeah. So when it's, did
0: you decide that you thought that's kind of what you wanted to do?
1: Well, that is really the more interesting thing, is because you know, i I went to college in Washington D.C. Studying politics, studying international affairs. I was very much into, you know, traveling around the world and going to different places and learning about. I would, you know, part of what I considered to be my education was I would go to the cafe, this is before we all had computers. I would go to the cafe in the lounge in my department and I would read the world news section of three different newspapers you know I mean that I was just really I had this idea that I was going to be you know doing humanitarian aid or you know diplomatic work or something in terms of international development you know and um and I felt that this was you know sort of there I I had this like lofty idea in my head that these were more meritable or valuable pursuits than, um, some of the things that I had been interested in as a kid, which were like music theater, drama, you know, acting, singing,
0: fun stuff.
1: Well, (laughs) I had, I had had a, a, quite a creative streak as a kid. I mean, I, I performed a lot, you know, and I, started playing piano when I was eight and had to give a concert every year. I was in this musical theater troupe, which was just really silly, but that I loved, you know, all through elementary. And then in high school, I was in drama and I would do theater and the plays and things like that. But I don't know if it's growing up in California or just having too much of a sense of reality or being too much of a realist. I just kind of said, I'm not going to be one of those girls who, you know, I was surrounded by people who just want to be an actress, a singer, or a model. You know, I'm not going to be one of those people. You know, I need to have some kind of higher pursuit. And, and it wasn't like anybody else was encouraging me to, you know, pursue the creative arts in a professional manner either. No. I don't come from that kind of a family, no. you know. So... Um, <laughs> So I just, I mean, I, it was just never a consideration. Once I went to college, I just kind of gave it up completely.
0: What, what were your, what was your major in college? Yeah?
1: International relations. Okay. And um, never played piano again. Never played in a band. Remember, my boyfriend in college bought me a Casio keyboard. It was like a five octave keyboard, and I was offended. I was like, I was trained on classical music. I don't know how to play this, but it was really partly just that I had never learned how to do that kind of a thing, which is like play in a band pop music or rock and roll or improvise or make myself vulnerable in that way to trying things that might not be good. I was never a person who was going to be able to get up and say hey I had this idea this creative idea and I'm now going to perform it for you all and it's probably going to suck but I'm going to do it anyways I just did not have that in me to do that you know it was just like I couldn't imagine myself ever putting myself in a position where I would be vulnerable to foolishness or being appearing as though I you know
0: You didn't want to fail, but why set yourself up to fail?
1: Yeah, I mean, I really didn't... Yeah, and it was like...
0: I mean, no one wants to fail, but you're not going to set yourself up. Think in your head. Yeah, So, but the
1: thing with creativity and the thing with creative pursuits is that what I've learned since then, and I didn't really start to come to this until I was 30 years old, is that you can't... That vulnerability is foundational to creativity. You know, it's absolutely foundational. Absolutely. And so it's you you have to be able to open yourself up to risk and failure and all of that. Um and so that for me was something that I didn't come to until um much later. So I so I um I ended up not pursuing a career in, in international development and um, became really passionate about media. Um, I started listening to Democracy Now, which is a, a radio TV broadcast, and um, really really started um, caring a lot about this um, you know, media conglomeration and access to independent media, access to independent journalism. It was at a time when independent journalism was basically just falling apart and um, started volunteering at my local Pacifica radio station in D.C., um, just answering phones during fun drives and things like that. And, um, and then decided to move to New York to go to grad school. And was going to study, did study economics. I got my master's in economics. And, but it was like, I've always likened it to being in the closet. You know, it was really much like that because I got there and when everyone in my program was getting internships on wall street or, you know, things related to economics and finance, I immediately went and got an internship at democracy now, which is a news organization that has Nothing to do with getting a master's in economics, really. Um, (laughs) So, um, and then after that, I um, responded again. It's so much like the way that the experience was for me was so much like those movies that you see of like men in the 70s who go to a dark park you know, to get a blow job or something. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> it was like, I went on Craigslist and I saw this ad for a research intern for a documentary and I cannot tell you why I responded to it. You know, it was just like, I just can't even, for me, it was equivalent to that. It was like, I'm just gonna do this thing. I'm going to apply for this
0: research And then that, that was step. your in, huh? That's how you got in.
1: Well, yeah, I mean that woman. Started. That woman ended up being a mentor to me, and um, she thought I was really smart. And what I realized about documentary was that um, I didn't go to film school, and I didn't go to journalism school, and or anything like that. But I was just actually really smart.
0: <laughs> right.
1: So, and I had that kind of a I had that kind of a mind for. Um, for research. So I just, I guess it was a capacity for um, investigation and then the sort of ob- objectivity and critical thinking skills to kind of apply that to, well, any kind of research really. So since then, I've been doing all kinds of research, um, not just for documentary. Um, I worked for a while, you know, I mean, I've had so many weird jobs, like, you know a hedge fund manager who hired me to you know do research and ghostwriting for him for a book that he was never going to publish um I well I ghostwrote two books for your dad yeah <laughs> you know yeah um and uh I did a, I've done a, so I've done a lot of editing um manuscript editing for academic journals um other kinds of things like that. I, so when I finished grad school, again, again, so, so I worked on that documentary, and it was extremely gratifying. Um, and
0: uh, which, which documentary was that? The first one I worked what on. What was it called?
1: Um, it was called Forgiveness, A Time to Love and A Time to Hate, and I wasn't even interested in the subject. I mean, I didn't really have any strong feelings about the need to make a documentary about the concept of forgiveness, you know, and it was very esoteric to me you know um, this filmmaker really deals in the spiritual landscape and that's not exactly where a lot of documentary is today and um, but um, is a veteran filmmaker and so really gave me kind of a, a really nice sort of classical training in, yeah. in the way that um, documentaries uh, you know can be produced when they're done you know, professionally with a budget right? and well, well done in terms of process uh-huh. and, um, and technique and, you know, there being a craft to it. Um, so, but again, it was like, I finished grad school and documentary filmmaking was not my career. I, you know, I, I quit before the film was even done, you know? And, um, I quit actually right as we were going into production. Um, I had. Uh, even though, she, uh, even though I'd been offered a job on the production, um, it just wasn't... You know, I was going to go work at a think tank in Berkeley working on campaign finance reform, um, which is what I did. Uh, and that was a wonderful experience. I was the research director there and um, really sort of delved into congressional politics um, and delved into the... Um, not only the research side of that, but also the the messaging and the advocacy around um, getting people to think more about the need for campaign finance reform or just getting them to think about the influence of campaign finance money on legislative decision-making and things like that. So I was really into that, but um, I, <laughs> I had caught that bug. And then that time that I had spent in New York wasn't just me working it wasn't just it wasn't just the bug I had caught from me working on documentary and me working in T V news. It was being surrounded by so many creative people, so many artists. Um my friends there were musicians and playwrights and <laughs> I'm losing my breath from talking so much.
0: <laughs> because you're pregnant. My friends slow. there were... Take it slow.
1: Yeah. So my friends there were musicians and playwrights and doing all these creative things. I had friends who would, you know, just do do kind of like weird experimental installations and things like that. And, it, and I just really... You had kind of just been,
0: gravitated towards that. Well, now.
1: I just... It felt like when I got there... That it was something that I had been missing from my from my from my adult life. I had spent all this time in D.C. around people who were really smart, who who were all making money in their 20s, and who were really driven and ambitious. But um, but it was just kind of a creative black hole, you know. And I wasn't really feeling a lot of inspiration. And I got to New York, and it was the opposite. Everything, everywhere, I was just like. It was all interesting, you know? Yeah. Um, That's
0: probably why you stayed there for a and, and
1: what I was so drawn to was just people's... Just people following their instincts about... Oh, I have this kernel of an idea. Um, and I'm just going to try it out. You know, I'm going to find a venue. And I'm going to perform it. Or I'm going to install it. Or, you know... I remember, a friend of mine had this idea that her, her, and another friend of mine—they wanted to install patches of live green grass, like sod, little pieces of sod, sod in subway trains and then just document people's reactions to it. You know what I mean? And they did it.
0: Oh, they did? Yeah.
1: And they created a website, and they had me, like, write up all this, you know, material for them in terms of, like, what That's the concept funny. was and everything. Yeah. And it's just, like... It, like. Just the just the creativity there. Uh-huh. You know, yeah, just the kind of sure. the absurdity of it, but also like and they ended up getting a subway train shut down because of it
0: too. Wow. It's like it's like
1: security alert. Like what is it? It's grass. Right. You know? And they called the project Vitamin Green and it was just all about like, you know, intervening on, you know, our mechanical world with natural you know, I mean, it was just great things like that, you know, and I had friends who were out on the street selling their art for a living and um, you Now know,
0: where is this in, in, in New York? This is in Brooklyn? is Were you were in Brooklyn the whole time? When you were in New York?
1: Uh, well, yeah, when I first moved there um, in 2006, yeah, I moved to Brooklyn.
0: Where Okay, so as far as like create creativity area in new york Mm -hmm. what where is it brooklyn no give us the layout yeah
1: i mean new york city has five boroughs right um brooklyn is one of them but really uh it's not i mean it is now brooklyn is now a brand and it's now um, much more like san francisco to me it's a place for rich people um and uh when I got there in 2006, I moved to what is now sort of... <coughs> Sorry, I need to get some water.
0: You can just get water, I can just get
1: <coughs>
0: Get your water, get your agua. Oh my God, so
1: much talking.
0: All right, yeah. Where were we?
1: Yeah. So when I moved to New York in 2006 to go to grad school, um, I moved to Williamsburg, which now has become this sort of iconic place um, that people associate with hipsterdom.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And,
1: um, but at the time I moved there, it was, you know, still raw. It was, like, basically at the end, mm-hmm. you know, it was about to become a place where, Everyone you know, wanted to go. Jersey boys with popped collars would come, you know, mm-hmm. to, uh, you know, party on the other side of the tracks or whatever. Right. But um, But when I first got there, literally, I remember it was like walking down Bedford Avenue. I lived in a warehouse on Bedford Avenue right, right now in this place that's just incredibly overrun. With, you know, the typical kind of popular New York stuff. Uh But at the time, it was still, you know, everybody who was there lived in the neighborhood. And, um... And I just, man, I was like, everybody was so fucking beautiful, you know, like just everyone looked interesting. Like all the, like all the fashion, you know, I love clothes. I love that as a form of expression, Mm -hmm. not in a design or luxury kind of way, but just in, I mean, just every, every outfit, I would just be like, oh my God, I was so inspired, you know?
0: Mm -hmm.
1: And, uh, and then everybody was working on something, making things, you know, everyone was making stuff. Um, so I was really just fell in love right away. I totally um, felt finally, I felt like I was in a place where I kind of like, you know, come home to. It was like, oh, I, I, this is a place for me, you know, and um, lots of sex and drugs and all that too. Yeah. So.
0: Good times, right? <laughs> you know? Um,
1: yeah, and I and I kind of lucked out. You know, I lived in this extremely hip place, you know, and it was just fun. It was fun, you know? I, um, I had a windowless room in a loft with three other people where it was like a warehouse that had been converted into lofts, and we didn't even have any windows. We just had skylights. Jeez. And it wasn't even, like, real walls. The The partition between my room and the apartment next to mine was not exactly a wall. I remember one time the neighbor's cat came in through my closet. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? It was like... <laughs> but, I mean, it was, I just, I, I loved it.
0: You How know? long were you at that spot, that particular spot?
1: Well, I was there for a year, and then um, one so you, of my best friends moved in there after I left. And so I would go back and visit and stay again, and, or I would sublet for a month or so. And um,
0: yeah. you, uh, you upgraded to better places throughout your decade? And, and um,
1: yeah, I mean, I didn't want to live in a windowless loft anymore. right? Um, and, uh,
0: Gotta have a window.
1: In my second year of grad school, I um, was not going to... Fucking do drugs all the time. I was a right. little
0: more. Oh, yeah, so you're going to school at that <laughs> point, too.
1: Yeah, I was, you know, I was <laughs> getting my master's. Where'd where you go um, to school then? At the new school.
0: It's called the new school?
1: Yeah called the new school um i was in the new school for social research which is the original new school why does
0: that sound familiar
1: um it's known now um because they you know what originally in the 30s it was the university in exile so it was a bunch of exiled socialists who came from eastern europe um and uh so that's why they called it the new school then they started buying up other schools so like probably the most famous school that they bought is parsons school Mm -hmm. of design which is um most people in America would probably know as the home of Project Runway right Um, one of my roommates was a teacher that was an instructor there Um, they also have the drama school, they have a school for contemporary uh, they have a jazz school, they have you know many different kind of creative schools within the larger new school brand now got it but the original new school was the new school for social research and so this program that I went into was like just basically a bunch of Marxists um, it was a, it was, um, and I was not a Marxist I did not go there to be
0: uh-uh.
1: but I did go there because I understood that I had received my education from within the Washington bubble and um, knew that that sort of um, neoliberal consensus was not a universal consensus by any means and that I that if I wanted to really um, I felt that for me to be able to really know what I believed I needed to learn about the things that weren't necessarily you know du jour today right. um, but that have had really strong impacts and that there are still um, There are still a lot of people who believe in socialism, and I wanted to know about that.
0: Yeah, you there know? is.
1: So um, I just also don't. I'm not threatened by learning about things that I might not end up believing. No. You know, are the right. You know, I just that's not what academia is about. So I just threw myself in there. You know. Yeah. Was, you're not gonna um, get
0: honey dicked in. Okay. <laughs> Let me get away. My- yeah. <laughs> All right. So your um...
1: yeah. So I just threw myself in there, and you know, um, didn't want to study. I did. Ma- I did feel that I made kind of a mistake in that. I really did want to be studying um, more, sort of like uh, natural resource economics, and um, I wanted to look at externalities in terms of the environment, environmental externalities, and. This was a school that was full of labor economists. You know, they were much more interested in labor, Um, Marxism, you know, things like that. Uh So um, I enjoyed it and I don't regret it, but I think that I was... um, that there was something about New York that was appealing to me more than necessarily the school. That was the school that I could go to New York and do a two-year master's program and not have to write a thesis.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: And, um... (laughs) <laughs> Those were things that I considered. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, of course, in the end, I ended up writing a thesis, anyways. Um, I was, I had been intimidated by the idea of having to write a thesis before I went to school, and I ended up doing an independent study my last semester, which was equivalent to essentially writing a thesis, anyways. So, wow. um, I, um, I did much better in school than I thought I had. I just hadn't, I had underestimated my own. Um, Abilities, And they did invite me multiple times, encourage me to go on and seek a PhD. And I just didn't feel it was the right school for me. Right. And also at that point, because I had, excuse me, because I had spent the whole two years, <laughs> um, doing journalistic work and had really become so much more comfortable with the idea that, um, I could do journalism and other kinds of work, um, just didn't feel that, I guess I just didn't, I didn't see how I know what academia is and I love academia, but I didn't feel that I I felt that I could work for seven or 10 years on some arcane subject and not reach a whole lot of people, you know, yeah. Whereas there was an appeal to me with the sort of immediacy of, you know, working on a daily news broadcast where every single day you're reaching hundreds of thousands of people around the country, um, yeah, that just that much, you know, just much more sort of being able to reach an yeah. audience, a broader audience, uh-huh. not an academic audience.
0: Yeah. Um, a more diverse audience.
1: Yeah, too. I mean, just, it, uh, you know, a non-academic one. Yeah. So um, that going to Berkeley and working at MapLite um, was really the perfect um, way for me to transition into a different kind of mindset in terms of what I thought my vocation was, um, in terms of my um, vo- vocational track, um, because that in that capacity there at MapLite, I could do serious research, And I could, I was given the the latitude to spend time and resources, really looking at data, and looking at um, digging deep into um, congressional politics. And I could still, I still had a communications team around me that could disseminate that information to a broader public, without it just ending up in an academic journal. Right. You know. Um. So that appealed to me.
0: Yeah, that's appealing.
1: But, yeah, so what happened, though, at MapLight was um, I realized that... um, I realized that uh, money is always going to be... um, Influencing politics and that um, you can't legislate that away. That was a feeling that I came away with after studying, you know, the data for two years and looking at things that were happening. We were looking at um, direct campaign finance contributions. And while I was in the middle of this huge research endeavor, um, Citizens United passed. And it made, it made direct campaign contributions just almost irrelevant compared to the amounts of money that could flow through you know, the, 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 just the flows of soft money that we couldn't track with our research program, that we were not tracking with our research program. So it made me feel as though the work that we were doing was really... Um, overlooking just this huge so what i realized was money is always going to find a way to flow you can dam up one avenue and it will flow in another avenue and so what i want to do is i want to be following that money um in a more fluid way and i felt that um i could do that better as a journalist you know
0: it seems like there's a lot of money that you can't track
1: Right. Well, yeah, but it's just if kind you're. Of it
0: seems like. You know.
1: If you. But you, so that adaptability to saying, you know, okay, we built this research program to look at this one particular flow of money, and the money's no longer flowing in this way. It's flowing somewhere else. Somewhere so we have else. to follow it somewhere else, right. you know, and that. And I was feeling restrained in that sense. That makes um, sense. And also had caught the documentary bug and was, you know. Um, <coughs> Not just the documentary bug, but I had started to consider that I might have creative capacities that I had been that had been lying dormant for a long time and um, that I had perhaps pigeonholed myself into a life that um, I would later regret.
0: Mm hmm. You had to let it out. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Really, honestly, yeah. it was. It was. It, it felt like that. It felt like letting it out. Um,
0: uh-huh. I Know the feeling.
1: And uh, sort of culminated in almost kind of like a, you know, a nervous breakdown, um, maybe compounded by other things, but um, just a just a huge moment where it was like, you know, I want to start from scratch. Um so I quit my job and um I bought a Canon Vixia, which at the time was uh, you know, it's a what you would call a prosumer video camera. Um mm-hmm. on mini mini D V.
0: Ooh Yeah, little I tapes. Those. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But it
1: was H D and at the time, gosh, it probably cost almost a thousand dollars. Yeah. Um And I bought a 700-page volume... uh, What is it? The Filmmaker's Handbook, A Comprehensive Guide for the Digital Age. I have it right there.
0: That's awesome.
1: And I read the whole thing. I mean, I didn't, you know, maybe not every single page, but I just... It was like, I'm coming from an academic background. I don't have a film school education or a journalism education. My approach is to just teach myself right you know get
0: the information from books
1: that I'm a book person yeah (laughs) Yeah. yeah so um what I wasn't yet comfortable with was what I saw so many of my friends do which is not bother reading any books or reading anything or going to any classes or learning about the history or the craft they just go out and they do it You know, and I I was just never one of those people. I was just never going to be one of those people who could just go out and try and risk, you know, reinventing the wheel or doing something incredibly cliche or making all kinds of really typical cliche mistakes. I was always really afraid of that, and I still and I still am to a certain extent. Um, And I see people all the time just go out and say, "I'm going to be a filmmaker," and they just pick up a camera and they start doing something and, and sometimes it really works sometimes and then i'm <laughs> and then i'm very resentful i have yeah, you know i have one friend i'm thinking of in particular who is like we talk about this a lot cuz he kind of took the same path as me where he didn't you know he was just telling me this the other day it's like i didn't go to film school so i don't have that background in the craft you know but he is a person who is not afraid to just Pick up the tools that he has at his disposal, and more importantly, gather people around him who um, listen to him and who are energized by his energy. And he's able to just make things.
0: Some and, people just have that too.
1: Yeah, and they don't aren't they're not necessarily masterpieces in any way, you know, but he just goes out there and he makes them and then he learns and then he does it again and then he learns and, and, yeah. and I just never had that. That's not, that does not come natural to me, you know? I don't
0: know if it's really, um, I don't know. I I mean, a lot of the people I worked with didn't go to film school either. Yeah. And I mean, a lot of them did, but a lot of them didn't. They just learned. And they just fucking learned. Right. You know, on hand.
1: Yeah.
0: I don't know. You can learn a whole lot just by doing it.
1: Right. You absolutely If you have good can. mentors. You can. And I... And you know, if
0: you're working with legit producers and, and directors, you can learn what they know.
1: hmm Absolutely you can. And I um, have worked on um, projects where I, you know, hired a bunch of interns who were from NYU... Or from NYU Film School, Mm -hmm. or had gone to prestigious film school programs, and had no practical experience, whatever, and were basically useless to me, (laughs) you know. Um, So absolutely, and I mean that is what I that is what I eventually did. I mean, when I quit my job and I started just playing around with the camera, I um, found the one. I was in that at that time. I was in the Bay Area. I found the one producer I knew. I didn't even know him. He was my brother's friend, and I said, "You know, can you get me a job on set?" And he made me a production assistant on a commercial, and that and that's how I started. You know, it was like I'm thirty years old, thirty-one years old at this point. I'm ten years behind, and I'm going to be a PA, which is the lowest on the rung. I mean, it's like you're a gopher, and there are no. There are very few 31-year-old, you know, educated <laughs> female. I mean, it's just I was basically just with a bunch Weird, of really young. I mean, yeah, I mean, it was it was it was really hard. Yeah. I mean, for me, um, just emotionally, it was it was difficult to just kind of say I'm starting, but it made sense to me. Like, well, if I'm not going to go to film school and I don't, you know, and I'm already 31 years old. What am I going to do? Well, I'm going to learn. I'm just going to go and I'm just going to put my head down and try to learn, you know, and you got to start at the bottom. And, um, I did learn uh, a lot about production, uh, ended up getting to a point where I said, okay, I'm not doing this anymore. I cannot be a PA anymore. It's not working. I had... (laughs) Well, I'm I'm sure I've told you this infamous story about how I got fired as a PA.
0: I don't remember. Okay. I'm sure you have. Yeah.
1: Well, I finally got, I, I moved back to New York and I finally, I had really wanted, I had been working on reality shows in San Francisco and right, I remember that. Um, commercials and just little piddly things that I wasn't really into. Just taking any PA job I could, like, Contests and reality stuff mainly you know what are you going to get in San Francisco commercials and stuff like that so um, I went back to New York and all I wanted was to work on an independent film I just wanted to work on an actual feature you know it was just Mm -hmm. like I just wanted to see how a feature film is made and I had but not like you know I had been a PA on really big Hollywood films where I would just do like you know day player like run some errands or something like that but I really wanted to be long term on a feature Uh So I get this job as an office PA and, um, they hire me and I start the next day and I go up on location and I just, at that point, I just think that I was just too old. (laughs) I just couldn't, they actually told me when they fired me a week later, um, that my, my supervisor was 24, maybe 25 she was younger than me. She was f- in physical stature, smaller than me. She, when she when she fired me, she was trembling. <laughs> I actually had to kind of coach her through firing me. I don't know if she'd ever fired anyone before, and I had, you know? <laughs> and she had her supervisor there with her, and they were both just nervous. They were nervous. It was very weird, you know? And um,
0: Do you know if this was their first feature they were working on? No, it wasn't. Oh. It definitely wasn't. Okay. Yeah,
1: no. Um, and, uh, they, um, you know, the girl said, I just don't feel like you're enthusiastic about taking lunch orders, you know? I mean, like that, <laughs> you know, <laughs> honestly, you know, honestly. And it's like, well, no, I'm, no not. I'm not, but I'm doing it. But I, you know, it's like, I understand that's what my job is, but why the fuck do I have to be enthusiastic about that? You right. Know? And, um, And, uh, and I didn't really know how to use the copy. I couldn't figure out how to copy the sides, you know, it was like, but I had these really big ideas about the office and how we could sort of run the office. And, you know, it was just, I was just way, I was just like really struggling to stay within the bounds of my job, you know? Even though I knew what my place was and I, I knew how important it was to stay in your place, it was just hard for me to... Oh. And then there's so many hours as a PA where you have to sit and do nothing, nothing. and wait until somebody speaks to you. Right. And you have to be grateful right. that you are there. Even if it's 16 hours and you're not doing anything and you just sit there for that 16 hours because that's because everybody else is there doing things and right. you are just expected to be there. So they know that you're there in case right. they need some more toilet paper to wipe their ass, well, you know? Yeah. And you have to be grateful and you have to be deferential to the people around you, especially producers and, um, right. anybody above you. And, um,
0: a weird that deference like
1: that. just does not come naturally to me. You right. know, I can respect people who have more experience than me but I can't, I, it's hard for me to just automatically defer because, oh, you're the producer, right. you know? And so um, the best moment on that, on that, in that week, oh, and another thing they said when they fired me was, <laughs> you're an intellectual. <laughs> you should be running your own business. That's like the only time in my life I think I got explicitly fired for being an intellectual.
0: Wow. You know?
1: Which was like, is that, you know, I yeah. kind of like I'll wear that with a badge of
0: honor. Right. You know? like, how do you take that? Um, oh, God.
1: But the best, the best time I had on that whole job was when they sent me to go pick up one of the actors at the airport. And uh, I had to drive. We were up in the mountains on location in Catskills. And I had to drive down to Albany. And pick up this actor, and then we got lost in the woods and had a little adventure. And in that space, I felt more like um, I was with a peer. I was with somebody who was not treating me like a PA, who was just talking to me as somebody who was, like, the same age as me, you know, and just being totally normal and down to earth and real and i was like oh god man i am not a pa you know this is just not
0: i'm just how long was that job a couple weeks
1: oh no i lasted a week
0: oh, one week, and, week. As, and
1: again again as soon as production started i was there for pre-production and the day before they were going to start production they sent me home you know and um so I still hadn't gotten that experience of working on a movie production in the way that I really wanted to, right. um, had been involved in the pre-pro and set building and things like that. But, um, so yeah, that was a big setback for me. And I remember driving away from that crying crying. <laughs> And, um, had just moved back to New York and was really trying to make a go of it. And I remember my dad telling me, you know, maybe you're not supposed to start at the bottom. Maybe you're not a PA. Maybe this is a sign that you're going to have to do your own thing, right. you know? And, um, and after that, I stopped trying to work my way up through production. Uh-huh. I just didn't try to do it anymore and, um, focused more on writing, I was having a lot of fun learning how to do screenwriting, uh-huh. and, um...
0: Which I also learned from a, a book.
1: Yeah, I, I mean, I took a class at the San Did Francisco you? Film Society. I think Society. I looked online.
0: I, I got the format, and then that's, uh, I just went.
1: I have over there, um, the Screenwriter's Bible, which I refer to a lot, um, just for technical, logistical things. That's it, um, yeah. And then I really enjoyed the class that I took at the Film Society, yeah. um... <laughs>
0: Uh, so you're writing
1: yeah so I started with that well but that still still that was so hard for me because of course I wanted it to be perfect and I was thinking way too big and way too complicated and Mm. again my friend who I was talking about earlier um, I remember sitting down with him we went to Coney Island I was like I really want to write and my brother had just passed I was like I, I had gone to New York for a little break and um I said, I really want to write, um, but I'm just, it's so, I'm struggling with how to start, how to begin. You know, it's just, I get caught up in, you know, complicated plot lines and I can't really get that, you know, just gets, I'm having trouble getting started, you know? And um, he said something to me that really, I guess, you know, changed the whole course of things for me because he said, Emily, don't think too much about it. Guy walks into a bar. What does he do? He starts talking to the bartender and then somebody sits down next to him. Who sits down next to him? What do they talk about? What happens? Keep it that simple. Mm-hmm. This guy walks into a bar, you know? And I was like, okay, it doesn't have to be a masterpiece. It doesn't have to be some great work. I just have to be able to build one scene. Just build one
0: scene. Scene by, you scene, know? by scene by scene.
1: And, um, yeah. And so I went home. I had things happening in my in my real life in my personal life that inspired me to think about a particular character. I built one scene with that character and then, did the complete opposite of what everybody tells you to do. What they tell you to do is to write story after story after story. They say don't even show up with a pitch until you have ten stories under mm-hmm. your belt. You know. Yep. Nope, did not do that. <clears throat> that very first advice that I took from him to write one scene, one character. I stuck with that scene and that character to this day. I'm still writing the same, same damn story, <laughs> and that's that was and that was how the short that I produced came about because that story became large and feature-esque, and I decided that I wanted to pare it down into something that I can make as a short, Um, and it it happened to work because it was a story with, uh, like, four different characters who were on different trajectories who were going to meet, you know, whose lives were going to sort of coincide at one point, but each story was in itself kind of a narrative capsule so it had the capacity for being broken down into a short so the short that you saw that i produced Uh was one narrative within a sort of an inner intertwining story that i still to this day work on
0: you know so you don't have (laughs) that full script done
1: well i've had different variations but it's never been done but i work on it um and I've had this argument with people before, where they're like, "No, you got to write a bunch of different stories. You have to let that one go and move on to the next one." I don't necessarily believe that because when you look at um, when you look at your favorite filmmakers' work, you see that they are always telling the same story. They're always hitting on the same themes. They're always, you know, they they are preoccupied with a certain thread. And it comes out in different forms with different characters and different movies. But at heart, they have a thing that they're interested in. and 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 so do I. And Uh so I just keep working it out with these characters. And, um, you know, it's constantly changing. It's not like I'm tinkering with dialogue, you know. Right. But it's using these characters... And this general idea of what happened in this time and place to keep refining, you know, narratives around these themes that I'm interested in. So it's it is kind of the same, the same story that I work on all the time, but mm-hmm. um, it's not like a it's not like a dialogue tinkering or like oh I'm ch-, you know I'm changing how this scene happens. It's really sometimes like there you know I mean like earlier this year I was. I just wrote a whole new, you know, they're there, it's changing a lot, got so it. it's not.
0: So you don't have? Is that you don't have that registered with the Writers Guild? Do you have anything registered with the Writers Guild?
1: No, I don't worry about all that kind of stuff. No. No.
0: No, you don't want to get that little plaque that they send you.
1: No, I don't worry about any of that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I do. I, I've, I've noticed that some people get kind of hung up on these kind of technical or legal aspects of like, oh, I got to copyright work I don't worry Uh about any of that stuff it's not necessary you know uh,
0: yeah I did on mine
1: I had a friend who um, recently uh, decided he wanted to write a book he had a great idea and then he started asking me questions and started getting hung up on you know what the chapters were going to be and what the title was going to be and it's like no you have a great idea just like think about the idea mm-hmm. don't worry about that any of that will stuff come you know later
0: like yeah. that will fall in place
1: but i mean that that that's a that's an escape mechanism that's a that's almost like a that's a way to distract yourself from doing the hard work of thinking about the big ideas you know it's hard to sit and it's a big pitfall that I see people fall into who are just are you know having block or who are afraid or uh, you know who are just not comfortable with you know who are just trying to avoid the the big picture, which yeah. is you know,
0: comics have a lot of
1: getting the, those ideas that out. Problem yeah. too, really.
0: Yeah, the f- the focus I think is yeah. is, a, is a lot of it. For me, it was um, really, uh, you know, the, the screenplay that I create that I completed mm-hmm. was a comedy, and for me, comedy is just easy to write. I can, oh, see? I can write comedy dialogue all day. But that's
1: I, so I, against I, the grain because most people say, m- most people would say that comedy is the hardest thing to write.
0: Right, they do. And I've tried, I have other, like three other projects that I've started writing, 20 pages in each one. Yeah. And then I'll just be like, it's not bad. And I'll just be like, eh, I don't know, I'll start this one. Eh, I yeah. don't know. I'm going to start, I, I just never went back to finish them. Yeah. One of them I was working on was when I was at Ridgeline, and it was um, basically, um, <laughs> I was going to write a film on... The premise of the song "Hotel California."
1: Oh yeah.
0: And I start. I got like twenty pages into it.
1: Now, was it based on things that you've heard about the premise, or was it just from your imagination?
0: It was from my imagination, just from the song. Because the, even the Eagles just say that they they won't even say really what right you know what I mean. It's up to everyone's interpretation. Mm-hmm. And um, and that one was kind of going good, but then I and I, I remember I gave a a copy to Doug Stanley to. You know, my mentor at the time to look over. He's like, This is really good. I don't know if we're going to get the rights to make this movie from the Eagles. <laughs> right. It's like, you might not want to finish this mm-hmm. project, put all that time in, unless yeah. you know you can lock down the rights. I'm like, yeah, I, don't, I don't know the Eagles. That is He's one. like, I don't either. So.
1: That is one thing when you're dealing with other people's comp- yeah. when you're dealing with other people's stories that you do have to worry about that technical aspect at yeah, the beginning. Scratch that idea. Yeah, I I shouldn't say that the one story that I'm I've only worked on the one story. I do have a couple of other things that I work on, and they're all based on ideas that I had in that really fertile period after my brother died, um, and they've just stuck. Um, but one of them, I've always had this. Yeah, well, I mean, all, by always, I mean, since I had my sort of, you know, rebirth. So, I, you know, the last eight, eight years, maybe, um, of adapting um, a novel from, um, well, one of my favorite novels, uh-huh. and this particular author, almost virtually every other novel he wrote has been adapted. And there's clearly a reason this one has not been, you know, Uh
0: because
1: it's not so easily adaptable. Um, But it's my favorite. I've read it many times. And um, and so I have really enjoyed, I really enjoyed for a while working that out and thinking about how that would work, you know, um, and uh, had to stop myself because it was like... You know, it would it would suck to write something great and then not be and able not to get be- the rights to it, you know. Yeah, it's a big deal. But I mean, for the most part, I don't think you should ever restrict yourself. I mean, it, unless you're unless you've you're so much farther along. I mean, for people like me who it's like just to get a full screenplay out <laughs> Is get a feature screenplay finished would be an accomplishment for me, you know. Uh-huh. So I wouldn't want to. I wouldn't want to restrict myself.
0: See, I don't. And for me, it's keeping it short enough. I think we've talked about this. I've had to cut scenes because it's way too long for a comedy. Hundred. And, I think I got it down to one hundred thirty-six Oh,
1: guess. I'm I'm the opposite. You know, I'm an I'm an editor. I'm I'm a paid. I don't want to cut
0: scenes. I, I I read them and I laugh out loud when I'm reading them. Yeah. I'm like, I wrote that. That's yeah. fucking hilarious. And I'm like, where are I can I use that somewhere else? This or that. But it fits the, but it fits the film though. Yeah. Like it all fit. I don't want to cut because it, it takes away from the story. And a lot of, it, it's a lot of smash scenes too. So it is quick. Yeah. Like a lot of the dialogue is quick, but
1: no, I'm, the, I'm not... I'm not going to sell that. Upset. There's
0: no way I can sell that. Yeah. It's, they're going to look at it and look at you out of your fucking mind. Yeah. 136-page comedy. It's not going to happen.
1: Yeah, no, I can get like 60 pages, you know. I mean, well, I'm, I'm really... I think I'm really good at editing myself. In fact, I would say that the biggest problem that I've had is that I assume my viewer, reader, knows more than they know. Mm. And... um and I, I, I reached a point um, recently where, um, which I felt was a really important milestone for me, um, uh, just a, a level of self awareness where I said, you know, after I made that short, um, that was a huge, that was a huge struggle for me to make something that was not going to be perfect. It's the first thing I've made, you know, and, um, at least the first narrative I've made. And, um, and then having to deal with the fact that maybe most people weren't going to get it or appreciate it.
0: Right.
1: Um, that, um, reaching that kind of level of self-awareness where you say, you know, my work might not end up being accessible, you know, (laughs) there's that word accessible, um, to a lot of people, and it might, um, accessibility a lot of times is, um, connotes, you know, highbrow or high art or pretension. Uh-huh. And um, it's not really something that I would want to go for, you know? Right. But um, being able to just say, like, I need to not worry about accessibility. You know, and, um, and just be okay with, you know, I mean, there are very few people in my personal life who get me. So why would I expect more people to get me right in my creative work? Yeah, um, that makes and sense. that was hard for me to, to get to that because, um, But then I started looking at my favorite films and my favorite filmmakers and the things that I enjoy or the books I enjoy or just all the music I listen to. It was like, I mean, a lot of it's pretty obscure, you know? So.
0: And I don't think, like, you're short. I, um, it just seems like they're, they're you know, it's a short, it's a short, it's it's a part of your story. Yeah. So it's, I, th- I thought it was good, but it was also like, man, I want more. Where's the, you know, where's the rest of the story? Mm. You know yeah. what I mean? Which is, you know, maybe someday, huh?
1: Yeah. I mean, no, I wouldn't. I, I
0: thought it was really well done. I don't know what, I mean, you've told me that you were not a hundred percent happy with aspects. Oh of no, it. not at all. Of course not. But I think everyone would go through that.
1: Yeah. I mean, uh,
0: Every writer, well, director. I guess
1: one thing that I was interested in in doing that was um, it was important for me to use that experience as a way to showcase my ability to produce. And that did not necessarily mean that I was going to put all of my time and energy into directing um, or you know, working, I didn't spend a whole lot of time with the actors and, and with the direction. So the
0: directing part of it, you didn't put, was it just you? Did you have like a DP or anything or just, it was just you did everything?
1: Oh God, no, no. I had a, yeah, I had a DP and I mean, I had a crew of 15 or 20 people. Um, So for me, that was what was what was important was me being a producer, because I feel even now, you know, the work that I do is much more on the production end in terms of my career, in terms of what I get paid to do. Right. um, It's it's producer work. And um, and uh, so I felt from a practical standpoint um, that I really wanted to show my ability to do that and so um directing the directing failed in that you know I, um was lacking in that aspect and also um another you know i learned a lot of lessons from that but one was um i hadn't worked with a dp before um, okay. because i had only been I hadn't worked with a DP in that capacity before. I didn't have any appreciation of the art of cinematography because in documentary, it really is not the same. Right. I mean, unless you're like, there are some, you know, like Werner Herzog or someone like that. Um, you know, and they're all, there are really a lot of, especially now beautiful cinematograph, cinematographic, cinematically beautiful direct documentaries now. Um, but so much of what I had been doing and what I had seen and worked on in documentary was not about cinematography. It was about right. um, other things. So,
0: documentaries have really blown up. It it's, seems
1: it's just so different. With
0: Netflix with the. I think the ability to to get things seen.
1: Yeah, I mean, but it's just traditionally been a completely different thing from narrative sure. filmmaking. So, yeah. I didn't have any experience with um, working out um, lighting and composition uh-huh. and working alongside a DP um, and choosing a DP based on certain the kinds of considerations you need to have you know um,
0: like what their past work
1: yeah I mean yeah but I mean aesthetic you know yeah, their aesthetic choices um, their
0: I mean, how did creative you, process how did you decide that how did you pick this person? money
1: I decided it based on money Got you know it. this guy budget,
0: budget controls so much
1: yeah I mean this guy was going to do it for cheaper than the other guys and there were all kinds of red flags that I ignored and, um and in the end I paid the consequences of that which were that um this person um did not was not on my wavelength at all did not seem to respect my wavelength mm. <laughs> um, <clears throat> was uh, I think just not um
0: and you notice this for production?
1: Well, I mean, what I I had been so overwhelmed by the process of raising money,
0: oh yeah, um,
1: that once I finished my fundraising, I had um, I gave myself very little time. I wanted to get it done.
0: Yeah,
1: I gave myself very little pre-production time, and I should have given myself more. But it was based on. Um, uh, logistical constraints that I felt were important. Namely that I had a location that was not going to be available, uh, for much longer. And so I needed to, I basically had been out of the country, found out this location was going to be available. The house essentially Uh that the whole thing was shot in,
0: Uh
1: um, for a short period of time. My, it was my dad's house. He had just bought it. It was run down. And, um,
0: and you kind of wanted that, though, right? That, I wanted that, that house. Rundown. It was just—it
1: was perfect, you know? And I knew that I, I had an opportunity in that location that I wasn't going to have um, necessarily... It was going to be hard for me to find because I wanted a run-down house, right. you know? And it, and it would have been hard for me to find somebody who would have allowed me to remove everything from their house and make it look like shit, right. you know? Right. Just in terms of practically speaking, it was just a... So I had a limited time to... so I was out of the country and I just said he bought this house he's not gonna leave it empty like this there's gonna be a short period of time where I can get in there Uh and so I was dealing with that constraint and um so I raised the money and then um and then uh you know I chose a DP based on the budget
0: yeah
1: and um and it suffered uh There's actually a filmmaker here in town who, it it was so funny how he, um, when he saw the film, he told me that he could see what, he could see how I had had, he had an inkling of what my vision had been and how it had been thwarted. He could see that. Wow. Yeah. Which was interesting. Um and we're talking about really like technical thing, like just basic things. Like I just wanted wider shots. Right. And he brought long anamorphic lenses and he convinced me that, you know, uh, that it would be better. We would be better off with these anamorphic lenses. And I didn't have any experience, uh, with this kind of thing. And so I just thought, Oh, cool. We'll use anamorphic lenses. Neato, okay. you know? And, um, and, uh, constant, you know, at, from the beginning, just like, um, really, you know, not, I was very nervous, you know, I had this whole crew of professionals. Um, I was insistent from the beginning. So one of the things that I worked out when I decided I was going to do this was that, um, I was not going to try to do it on the cheap, that if I was going to produce a film, I was going to go all the way, um, I was going to go balls to the walls all the uh-huh. way and just spend the money to do it right because I knew that I was only going to raise the money once. I was only going to have one shot, and I didn't want to cut corners because I was trying to save money. Um, so I insisted that I was going to pay for professionals, professional rates, and and I've always had that ethic that um, if you go out and you look for professionals and you're willing to pay them professional rates and treat them like professionals, you're going to get professional work, you know?
0: I think for the most part, that's pretty true.
1: Yeah. And, um, and so I had assembled this team around me of professionals. Right. Um, and I show up on the first day and I've never directed a scene in my life. I mean, I never fucking even, I, I don't know what, I didn't know what I was thinking. I had never directed one single scene in my life, you know? And I was so was just terrified. I mean, I had asked your, ask Colleen, your stepmom. uh, she was there with me the whole time during fundraising and pre-pro I was yeah. staying with her and,
0: yeah. um, you were a mess. I, mean, I spent a few <laughs> weeks there in and I couldn't,
1: out. I couldn't see straight. I started getting blurry vision. It was uh, interesting. It was getting migraines. i have never know? seen you just... like
0: that. I was like, Jesus, she's, a, she's yeah. about to unravel here. Um, but no, you kept it together, though.
1: I did, um, but I did it in spite of the fact that I had this DP that I was not getting
0: no absolutely. what
1: i wanted from so um
0: well at least you know for the future
1: yeah but absolutely and what i learned from that was is like part of the process of um is you know i mean that you know well i learned something about being a director and i knew nothing about being a director before right. you know um and there were so many other great experiences on that project. I mean, so many great experiences on that project that um, this is just one, you know, this, these are the ways in which you, you look at the finished film and you think like, oh, it's not perfect because of these things. But then in reality, there were so many other things that went really worked really well. I mean, I still made a very, I think, from a technical standpoint, just in terms of production value, decent short film for my first short film, you yeah. know, so
0: it was the acting was good that guy is good
1: he was such a joy because um, he uh, is a sag um, longtime actor yeah. in San Francisco who has always gotten bit parts you know side uh-huh. side side parts uh-huh. um, never leading never leading man he didn't like, he didn't get cast you know you get typecast early on and then people decide you're not a leading man and then and you never get a leading right. man girl. and um I don't know if he said this is the only time or the first time but he was you know in his 60s Yeah. and it really conveyed to me that this little silly amateur short film of mine was the first time that he had really gotten the opportunity to be a leading man um and his wife told me later that he he, he just enjoyed it so much uh-huh. you know he wanted to sleep in the house you know so he right. could stay so in he, character he, right i mean he was just
0: he's a good actor i thought oh, I thought he God. Did, i thought he did really well good choice
1: and he and he, and the way that he i mean he taught me um what it is to be a director too just because he treated me like one right. you know it was like oh he's treating me Like, and, and he just really got into the character and, um, was, it was just such a joy to work with, you know, just really great. Um, just exactly what I had hoped for and had had envisioned, you know, and my biggest regret is that I didn't spend more time, you know, um, with both of them, right that I didn't give them and me more time, but I also didn't, um, you know, and they told me that later that they that they would have liked more time but i felt it was a kind of a respect for them because i was going to be paying them so little money that i didn't want to take up too much of their time got it and um in retrospect i think um and honestly i would have i I would have loved to have i had expected to pay them more money but that was the sad right Oh So um, that was the You know it, Low budget SAG rate It was just Really piddly Right It was pathetic
0: Yeah
1: And um, And so You know As an economist That's what they're willing to work for You know So that's what I paid them Right But in retrospect I think I would have um, I would have just paid them more Right <laughs> Because it was just not I mean in my mind It's not fair Right They got paid less than anybody else Really oh yeah and that's because that union has set those rates right. that that's what they're willing to work for uh-huh. and um, in my mind it was just unjust you know yeah. but as as a person on a budget you know as a market economist on a budget it's Got, like
0: I'm not going to
1: pay them more than what right. the union tells me to pay them right. So, but I think in retrospect I probably would have
0: I thought it turned out well, though, overall. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. I, I would, I just would have liked to see more, you know. I was like, oh, I'd, I'd well, like there is more. The sto- right. There is. <laughs> there is more. I'd like to see the whole <laughs> story. That'd, so the rest of the
1: story, there isn't, um, the rest <sighs> of the story has to do with um, her. Um, I don't know if you remember, she refers to her son. Mm-hmm. She has a son. Mm-hmm. He comes looking for her. He comes from, um, Russia or Eastern Europe uh-huh. looking for her and um, has to do with um, what happens after Bert the main character dies right. with his brother and, and um, his brother coming to terms with that and um, and then there's this whole backstory this whole kind of narrative of flashbacks that the brother has um, remembering them growing up right and um, which is basically him trying to understand how he became, how the main character, Bert, had become this, you know, um, isolated recluse. Recluse, yeah. Um, so not, not anything more in terms of, I mean, you saw all of the interaction that you're going to see with those two characters. Right. But it's just filling all that in with um What
0: made you things. choose that? that those scenes as opposed to other things did you this, feel that you were, it was able to
1: it was compact and it was it was get in every, it, yeah
0: get something in and it was also the time.
1: way that i wrote it that was like um everything that happened between them are the things that nobody else knows right so except for the neighbor you know, she has an inkling,
0: right? she's, but, um, she's always peeking and shit, right? Yeah, right.
1: But um, but their their own little world that they had going, the little world that they, the little relationship that they created for themselves, was contained within one location. Right. Easy. It, it just felt like the easiest story to tell. Huh. Whereas the rest of it is like you know there's there are people who live in the world right you know so there are scenes in other places yeah and for sure other things going on and it's just much bigger not ideal for a short you know yeah whereas you know I mean making a short is about simplifying as much as possible right. you know and it's not that it was a simple short in any way um but that was as simple as I could get it right you know? so interesting At the time, also, I was, I guess, just really um, uh, something to me about just, you know, this character not leaving his house and just, like, what his world was and everything. Right. Um, Yeah, it was just the story, the part of the story that I thought I wanted to tell, that I wanted to kind of work on, so.
0: Right. Hmm. What about now? You well, got this new job.
1: Yeah, so I you, haven't been writing. I don't, you know, I don't work on narrative stuff um, for money, so um, it falls by the wayside a lot because I get sidetracked by the work I do, you know, for money, which is documentary mostly, right. or at least it has been for the last, you know, the last two years have been a lot of documentary. Um two or three years, yeah. And in that capacity, I've um, doing a lot of res- I do a lot of archival, right. So um, this year I've done a lot of archival. And all of last year, I worked as an archivist. Technically, last year I was an associate producer and an archivist on one film all year. Um, so I did I was doing other things besides archival. Um, pretty, you know, working on some shoots and, um, managing a post-production office and just things that go with being an AP, but, um, yeah. uh, but I've been doing a lot of archival for the last couple of years and it's a lot of fun. So, um, but it's a job that a lot of people don't even know exists, you know? I mean, it's not... Feels like sometimes like Every Tom, Dick, and Harry Wants to make a documentary You know mm-hmm. There was a Great kind of Onion-esque article I don't know Where it was circulating But it was like you know, documentary filmmakers are running out of subjects, so their subjects are just becoming more and more ridiculous. Like the workings of the anthill on a on, you know on a suburban <laughs> landscape in right. Pasadena or something. Right. You know, and it's just getting totally ridiculous. Because especially in certain kinds of communities, like New York or Berkeley or L.A. or some, you know, it just there just seems to be so many people wanting to make documentaries. It's pretty and hot right now. They don't necessarily know anything about making documentaries. <laughs> <laughs> and they don't um, think about the role of research and archive. They don't think about the role of archival at all.
0: Right. Well, someone's got to figure out all the fucking info.
1: I mean, they honestly don't even consider it, you know? And it's... um
0: It's kind of important. Oh. I mean, that's kind of the whole thing.
1: It's important if you understand and appreciate the value of intellectual property, which today in our digital world, in the world of the Internet, in the world of YouTube, a lot of people don't. And um, I'm not in any way like an advocate of what pharmaceutical companies do in terms of... You know, I spent a lot of time in grad school working on, um, uh, you know, what I consider to be an incredible injustice, which was, um, you know, the patenting of ethnobiological processes in um, other countries. Pharmaceutical companies will go in and patent a process that has been you know, a medicinal use of an herb that has been passed down through oral tradition um, for hundreds of years in a tribe. But nobody ever wrote it down and patented it. And so now this pharmaceutical company is going to come in and patent it and make a lot of money. And actually, there have been cases where they go back and they charge that tribe for, you know what I mean? Yeah. For their use of a particular, you know. Uh So I'm not, I'm not like, just as a disclaimer, I don't have like a, I'm not... You know, gung ho on all forms of intellectual property, but um, in general, I think that there is a problem, which for some reason I just associate with sort of you know, millennial and colonial entitlement and sense of appropriation, which is that I see it on the internet, I can take it, it's I can do whatever I want with it, you know, and. and it just doesn't work that way you know and I don't want it to work that way I myself as a creator and a maker want to be credited for my work and Uh I want to be compensated for it if I have put it out there in a way that I have am hoping to profit from yeah so um, a lot of times people call me at the last minute um, frantic because they took a bunch of shit off the internet and didn't bother to look into where it came from, and now suddenly they can't get insurance yeah. or whatever, yeah. you know. Or they suddenly realize that, you know, they that they that they just can't. You can't just rip can't shit just off the internet, you, you know. And um, and they don't appreciate the time and energy it takes to track down sources, right? Um, and then to you know. Pay compensate those sources and work out the legal arrangements of those too. kind of things, and yeah. so, so that's what I do. And um, when I'm given the time to really delve into research, it can be a lot of fun. You right. know, it can be a lot of fun.
0: That can be a real issue. That was uh, with Doug at Ridgeline. That was that was one of the first things. You know, he he embedded into me too. Was like we'd be doing something. He'd be like oh what song is that? You're not going to use that, are you? You're <laughs> yeah. not putting that in there, are you? Yeah. Like he was, like, oh, well, maybe even almost paranoid of getting, you know, right. Having legal issues.
1: Yeah, I mean, you should be. You should yeah. always be considering that. Yeah. Now, I mean, um, you know, fair use is a is a term that we use in documentary for, um, well, in in lots of things. But I mean, there there are ter- there are guidelines for fair use, and you should be aware of what they are, and they're always evolving and new standards have just been put out by the IDA about, um, a really great little handbook on what is fair use and what isn't and, um, what you can legitimately do. Um, but, uh, it's not just about, um, you know, trying to get away with things. Um, it's about appreciating the work that other people have done before you Yeah, you know yeah, I mean and sure. I just god I've just worked with these producers who just have such a sense of entitlement you know well
0: there's a lot of producers too that are not I don't know maybe as creative
1: oh totally they
0: don't see the cre- yeah. you know what I mean they don't oh, even yeah. think of it like that mm-hmm. they just yeah. I want it I want it there Right. I need to go there figure it out yeah I don't like that. I don't do well.
1: And then they and then they just rip shit off of people in lieu of telling their own stories or in lieu of like making their own shit. Yeah.
0: But it's just because I wanted it. Right. Right.
1: And um and then the other thing that makes me cringe about it is that um, because everything is available on the internet, uh, most people don't realize what poor the difference in quality between a YouTube video. And something that you see in in a theater. Sure. You know, they don't understand that, like, you rip something off the internet, you cannot project it... You know, you can't put it in a DCP and project it into a cinema. No, you know? and then when they
0: do, you can always tell when it Looks switches like to those clips. You're like, "Oh, you just ripped that off the internet, didn't you?"
1: I mean, it's just not. It's yeah. and they just don't ever think about that. No. You know, because there's just there's so many people now who only consume their media and their art from the internet. They yeah. don't even go to the movie theater. But even if yeah. they do, they just don't understand how. The, you know, I had some. I was raising money to make my short. I was in Union Square in New York City sitting there with a hat, you know, just like Mm -hmm. begging for money with a sign that said Indie Filmmaker. And this woman comes up to me and she's like, I don't understand why you need all this money. You can just use YouTube. (laughs) i was like what and it was like she had conflated the entire filmmaking process into a phone and youtube right she didn't even understand why you would even need anything more well these
0: people think nowadays they have these phones and they're hd so that means it's as good as it's a it's what you're gonna film it's just and i can film anything i'm a director now right in your face Yeah.
1: yeah Now I I will say that culture. like there have been exceptions. I mean I believe from my understanding Taylor Sheridan filmed um, Tangerine on an iPhone, and I thought it was brilliant and I loved it and I loved his new film as well, I the Florida Project. Um,
0: I've heard of a few people but, getting um, away with it.
1: But I mean it it worked in the context of that film because it was shot as a kind of a reality show, kind of a it was shot as a kind of almost like a cinema verite, uh-huh. you know. It, it, it I could see how it would work there and it wasn't but also that's a professional who is probably using the iPhone to its fullest capacity which the average right. person just isn't you know Right. but yeah I mean the, the, one of the biggest frustrating most frustrating things about archival is people just thinking that like I mean there is nothing on the internet that is good enough quality to put in a, I mean you want to get a master right and to get a master you got to pay for it yeah and it takes time you know
0: and money
1: yeah money that's the other thing too is that like with documentary it's so hard because everyone thinks their project is a good cause and that they're telling an important story and that the world is going to be changed because of this story and therefore everybody should work on it for free
0: <laughs> right
1: and therefore no um, it's going to be such a great experience how many times I, I looked at job uh, quote unquote job postings that were like Oh, I wish I could pay you. But unfortunately, we just don't have a budget on this project, but it's going to be such a great experience and the work you're doing is right. going to be so valuable.
0: Uh-huh. It, work it's for just free not, for, the, for the credits yeah. too. That's what, that's some of the issues I had when I left Ridgeline was, you know, he wanted you to do a whole lot of shit for free. Oh, fuck no. And it was no. just like, oh, but you're going to get the credit for it. Nope. Your name will be on there. Nope. You, you get your IDBD IMD, credit. Uh-uh. Well, okay. You know, that worked for a little bit. And then finally I was, you know, that is what, um,
1: that's what internships are for. That is what school is for. You give yourself a very limited time where you say, I'm going to do one or two things for free because I, maybe I don't have any experience whatsoever. Right. But it is on you. And I, this, I'm very adamant about this. It is on you as a person who is trying to build a career in a media field, it's not just filmmaking, it's others as well, creative right. fields. You have an obligation to the, to, to the rest of your peers to charge money for your work. Right. Because if you don't, then you set the bar lower and producers are less willing to pay for the next person. Right. It's
0: like the weed industry. It just gets flooded with these people who lowball, you know, prices of weed. Yeah. You know, seems like.
1: Yeah, I mean, except I'm talking about not even lowballing. I'm talking about just doing it for free. Yeah, you know. Yeah, for sure. And um, and they need to be teaching that in school, not just in film schools or journalism schools or whatever. And they need to be teaching that in school everywhere.
0: They need to teach a lot that, of things in school because they're teaching a lot of weird shit in school these days.
1: There is an idea. These colleges are. Well, there is this misconception. I think this collective perception that to be an artist in and of itself is supposed to be rewarding and to you know put a monetary value on your labor that 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 when you're creating it's not labor or that when you're you know making something that's for quote unquote entertainment consumption that it's not labor mm-hmm. and that there is a that and the other thing is is that people sort of think they might not say it explicitly, but they sort of intuit that exposure is a form of payment. Right. And it is not.
0: Right. Yeah.
1: I mean, at least for most of us, it is not. Right. I mean, for some people who are driven by the need for celebrity and fame, maybe it is. Maybe but, so. Um,
0: and it depends on how much exposure you're talking about. But in general, I don't, I don't know.
1: Exposure is not a form of payment.
0: No. And the people who say that, well, that's not true. I'd say a lot of the people that say that are not very creative, and they haven't gone through the process of, for me, writing a joke or working the whole thing out or whatever it is.
1: And there's also just so much... fucking work, man. But it's also... There's so much exposure now. Like, it's not like... I mean, anybody can expose themselves now. Right. So the value of even of, of exposure is less now than it was 10 years ago. Sure. it's Less 10 years ago than it was 10 years before that because internet.
0: Everybody. You know? Anybody.
1: Because Snapchat. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, so um, that is a...
0: We're in a weird place yeah. that the world is. Mm-hmm and it's uh, I mean the last five years have been really just kind of weird and it's the internet for sure social media
1: oh god my beef with with social media is um is so much deeper than just like professional stuff it's um I'm definitely one of those people who worries about the future of humanity
0: well, well, me too <laughs> uh, but these you know, kids these days I don't even I don't really understand it's not
1: even just kids though I mean what's what's what scared me was how I've seen generation Xers um just completely capitulate um in 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 the face of uh social media in terms of their ability to socially interact to uh-huh. socially connect uh-huh. um you know, just as a single person in the in the quote unquote dating world, um, it's it's insane. I think about dudes who ten years ago didn't even what are we in? Two thousand eight. So I didn't start texting until two thousand five.
0: Yeah, you don't like texting though.
1: But I mean, you know what I mean, like it so a guy's my age, right? Mm-hmm. Uh-huh they went through high school and college and their early 20s without ever having a cell
0: phone and right. texting i didn't have one till and yet 2010. now
1: yeah and now when you think about the conversion that's happened in such a short amount of time how it's total capitulation yeah. they there's just a complete unwillingness to use any other form of communication. Yeah, it is a little weird. Other than like posting an Instagram photo or, um, you know, sending some a string of emojis, and you're supposed to, uh, and that's a, and that's a, that and that is now replaced, uh, actual human interaction. Uh-huh.
0: It's with weird with grown adults. Yeah, no, it's weird
1: with people who are even older, with our own parents. You know, it's like God, I didn't have to tell my mom sometimes like yeah please stop trying to have a long conversation with me in a text message
0: it's it's brutal have you forgotten what it was like
1: only 8 or 10 years ago you know like
0: people forgot how to put that that call button yeah
1: It's not, it's not.
0: That I don't know if it's just the the fear of getting stuck on the phone. Some people don't want to, like, oh, I, I just don't want to get caught on the phone for 20 minutes or whatever.
1: Oh, yeah. So I'll totally. just text I mean, back and just, forth
0: for two hours in right. fucking paragraphs.
1: Yeah, but it's like, it's just lowering the bar on human interaction, you know? And
0: so much is lost. I, I don't know how many arguments Absolutely. I've gotten over text. Oh, yeah. I've been like, oh, I didn't mean it like that.
1: I have there ended no relationships. Really. Like,
0: fuck it, eh.
1: Ended relationships because of things that all happen in. Text messages. Yeah, it's rough. Yeah, it's very, it's very, it's, uh, so yeah, and that's all kind of part of a, yeah, just the immediacy of, you know, this kind of expectation of immediacy and an expectation of, simplification of communication and stuff like that.
0: I'm not and a big fan Just of
1: not, not... There not being any work involved in communicating. It has to be easy, yeah. you know?
0: Well, everything just keeps getting easier and easier and mm-hmm. easier. But it doesn't the make anything world. really easier. No. In
1: the end, it makes things a lot harder.
0: No, it makes people just sit around and be fatter. Honestly. You know? Ugh. Oh. I like... um, Like, and I realize, like, even for this podcast, like, I realize need you know i gotta be up on youtube i gotta have my itunes and i gotta push it you know i gotta you don't gotta exist get unless you're on the internet you just don't yeah And i need to you know i need more followers yeah. people need to subscribe and all this but like other than like i like instagram it's easy i take pictures yeah there's no one's bullshit right very little they don't allow you to put links up even yeah you can't link anything it's just like a picture yeah and that's it you can say comments and that's it i like that i yeah. rarely go on facebook I'll send my Instagram to my face, like I'll, I'll send a picture from Insta to Facebook and then that's it. I'll yeah. log into Facebook like once a week, kind of look what's going on, and that's it. Yeah. Because there's too many people's, I don't want to see your agenda, I don't see your bullshit. If you got a picture to see, that's cool. That's why I like Instagram. Oh, they took a picture, cool. Oh, there. Yeah. That's it.
1: I used to like Facebook for news because I had um, a lot of friends who would post interesting news on there um, and I don't mean like news like this is what I ate for dinner tonight I mean like actual sure you know national and international news right um, but they don't really do it anymore
0: and a lot of at least you know I don't know I got a lot of uh actor friends and people in the business still th- through facebook and social media that i you know i'm still in contact with which is good because I, I still use them i got connections there but uh, a lot of those people
1: i see i just have instagram for that a lot yeah, of those people for that
0: to- you know what i mean
1: yeah i mean um, uh,
0: and they're just embedded in hollywood and it's just like a lot of those people just yeah i don't know it's not my scene
1: it's not a scene. It's a it's a Facebook page. You know what I mean. I mean that's the problem is that it's not a real scene. True. There is no real scene there. That I is guess a, not. That yeah. is just a bunch of that is a bunch of connections you've made on a software program. Sure. To you know from one avatar to another. Yeah. You know it's not. Um, I saw this great scene in this movie I watched this movie Brad's Status the other night it's yeah. Ben Stiller one
0: I love it
1: and um, it's a you know it's a quirky little quiet Ben Stiller movie yeah. um, but I really did um, identify with it I, I identified with this character in a lot of ways he, he's a middle aged guy who just has this resentment towards his more successful um, college buddies and he knows that it's wrong, and he knows that his perspective is out of whack. But he just can't stop himself. He's kind of, he's we, he's kind of having a moment of weakness. We just, it's kind of consumed with a lot of envy and resentment that,
0: uh-huh.
1: that these people that he had gone to college with turned out to be so much more successful and rich than him. And um, but at, at the end of the movie, there's a scene where he gets together with one of these guys, and this guy is like a rich and powerful um, political pundit of some sort where mm-hmm. you know the kind of thing where he gets a better table at the restaurant even though he's never been there and people walk up to him and ask him for a picture on the phone right. things like that and the guy the main character the Ben Stiller guy he is so wrapped up in his own sort of inferiority complex and it's just like feeling sorry for himself about the gulf between him and this guy, this old buddy, Yeah. that he has lost perspective on he has lost perspective on their, the actual quality of their relationship, which is, is that they were just college buddies a long time ago and now they're catching up and and this guy even though he just has no idea how much time this the, the Ben Stiller character has spent thinking about him obsessing yeah you know what i mean he just has no idea right and ben stiller's character is like so worked up because this meeting this dinner that he's having with this guy is such a big deal to him right and um he so he's like he's getting emotional and he's getting weird you know and he's like i mean what are we You know, (laughs) it's like, (laughs) he's like, just thinks he's catching up with his old college buddy. You know, he's like, you know, I mean, like my mom died last year and you know, it was on Facebook and you didn't even say anything, (laughs) you know? And it's just this assumption that like. My point in this is just that you mentioned the scene in Facebook, like this assumption that like, well, there are things that happen and they happen on Facebook. And, and if it's part of your community on Facebook, you, you have some kind of a social obligation to respond on Facebook in some way, you know what I mean? Right. Where I don't believe that exists, you know, like I don't. I just don't have that. you I know, it's like a whole lot. but there are. I mean, people it's get like it's yeah, I mean yeah. it's a Facebook is, even though it's just a virtual landscape, it is a very real landscape for some people, you know, for a lot of people. Yeah. And there is a decorum. And there are cultural values and there are now social customs that all revolve around the way we interact on social media that apparently matter a lot, you know, and it's like... But there's just that scene in that movie I just thought was so funny. It's, like... And, of course, the guy was, like, what the fuck, the fuck is going on right. here, right? And he's, like, probably doesn't even log into his Facebook. Right. Probably has, like, a publicity assistant who, like, manages that Facebook page. Right. You know? <laughs> just a lack of perspective on, like... Um, you know, the relative importance that it plays in different people's lives. It's not for some people they're on it all day long, all the time and it really matters every single little thing that happens. And for other people it's
0: like they just couldn't care less. I wonder how many successful people are on there all day long though. You know what I mean? Maybe there is. Successful? I mean Yeah. People that have shit that they're doing.
1: Well you don't if you're doing shit, you don't have time.
0: That's what I'm saying. If you're doing shit, you're not just you know (coughs)
1: And it's not again. I don't think it's as interesting as it used to be because they filter it, and you're not necessarily seeing everything that's current. That's
0: weird. Um, that's a weird one too.
1: Yeah, I mean, I find that I end up getting. You know, I get a lot of stuff from certain people who I've been, haven't even talked to in years. Right. And you're just wondering why you get it all, and you don't really. Yeah, you know, they
0: told they do that though. Twitter does. And that. it's not
1: chronological, you know, and it's not. Um, uh-uh
0: it's it's yeah well they have agendas too these companies yeah so um it's a weird thing yeah the world's weird
1: yeah
0: it really is
1: but I mean that's why I mean I do and I do go on them and I enjoy them to a certain extent especially because I'm a really sort of a reclusive person and um find it to be um a good way to connect when I don't want to connect in other ways but um but I understand that that's exactly what it is, right. and that it's not a substitute for, you know. I but I am I'm I'm I am vulnerable to all of the same, you know, uh, social and psychological conditions that everyone else is with it, which is that you know they there are studies now that show that, you know, dopamine receptors. You know, yeah. are activated when you sit there and you watch the like button. The
0: like, you get another like, I got another
1: like, yeah, I got another fucking
0: like. Can you believe that? Yeah, so and so liked it.
1: Yeah, can you see that? So and so liked that. And I it's have, like, wow. and I and I'm not immune to that. You I don't know, think I've any absolutely, I've absolutely gone through and looked at the entire list. Oh, who are all the people that liked? I'm sure, this, I you think know? we
0: all have. But you gotta. Some people don't realize that they need to pull themselves away from self awareness. Yeah, yeah, for sure. But it makes you wonder where the world's heading.
1: Um,
0: Like all these kids. Singularity. You know. I guess so. I (laughs) I mean, mean,
1: they're heading to a place where your biological self isn't necessarily um, the superior being. Yeah, I mean that the the that the biological self isn't um, as valuable as uh, we would have maybe perhaps once thought it was. You know. That the technological self, the virtual self, can be um, as gratifying.
0: Well, a lot of people argue do we need all the biological self? There's a lot of these uh, parts ro- of the biological self that. Uh, Saudi
1: Arabia just gave citizenship to a robot.
0: Wait, say it again? I'm sorry, I looked out the window.
1: Saudi Arabia yeah. just gave citizenship to a robot. You gotta
0: be kidding me. Nope. It's the beginning.
1: It's not the beginning, it's just the culmination of things that have been happening for well, a long time. I'll tell you what. Yeah.
0: Before you know it, it's fucking Skynet. Yeah. And the whole world's
1: I don't g- know what Skynet is.
0: The Terminator movies. Oh <laughs> where the machines take over. Yeah. Kill I all mean, the humans.
1: I think that okay, so language. I think if you know, when you're talking about singularity, I think um, language is really important because a lot of people get thrown off by words like robot, for instance. Your iPhone is a robot. You know, Alexa is a robot. Sure, yeah. And you are already living in, in a world full of robots that you rely on and and that are already completely integrated into your world unless you do not use these technologies at all. Right. But it's the way that we think about them. Um, your car is a robot, you know. I mean, already yeah, cars have all kinds of, are, of Drive intelligence. Drive themselves,
0: these new ones.
1: You know, written into them. And... Um, And so understanding what computers are, you know, and the language we use, um, understanding that, you know, all kinds of medical procedures that we already have that already exist are technological interventions in your biological self, you know, and, um, and so learning how to kind of be comfortable with that language in a more fluid way. As opposed to it being some kind of dystopian future where there's robots, you know, um, I think uh, would help us form better dialogues about where we're going, you know. Yeah. Especially, um, uh, you know, just the the language of transhumanism. It just seems so um, far fetched for so many people, but it's not. When you really think about the nuts and bolts practicality of 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 what these, um, you know, what transhumanists talk about, you know. Yeah. Or what they're anticipating happening in the future. Not too far off. It's not that it's not too far off. They're trends that are already in process. Right. It's a question of how do we, um, you know, it's self awareness again. It's just being aware, you know.
0: That scares me, to be honest.
1: Yeah sure Mm. but the question that gets posed you know is if you um, if your dad when he had cancer was given an opportunity to put a computer chip in his bloodstream that would have gone in and identified the cancerous cells and killed them would he have done it well it depends on how you put the how do you phrase that you know how is it presented to him when he's in the oncology ward right as uh, you know as a medical procedure that will save his life or as a computer chip being implanted in his bloodstream you know yeah that makes him yeah. that makes him now a now a a biological being relying on technological interventions in his body right and so it's just the the language that you use you know so uh-huh. that so that kind of technology already now exists for Parkinson's patients but it's a question of how you talk about it it's like you put a computer chip in your bloodstream, uh, and if that computer chip has wireless capabilities, you are now plugged into the internet.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Permanently. But if you have Parkinson's and you want to eat a bowl of soup, right. You're gonna fucking do it. Well. Because you, you like soup, Yeah. You, you can't put that spoon up to your own fucking mouth.
1: But that's my point. Is is it's like it's it's language. It's the way we think about it. You Just know. It I mean, off. we already have things like. Heart stents yeah. and you know uh, prosthetics. Sure, you yeah. know how are, you know. So it's it's just a it's question. Definitely,
0: of, you're right. It's already there's already things in place that are kind of there to a point.
1: Yeah, and I mean somebody like um, his name escapes me right now, but some of the transhumanists that I've studied will talk about how biological organisms since the dawn of time since the very first like prokaryotes have been technologically innovating to evolve and that it's just a natural
0: it's a natural
1: process um but i don't know i really don't know about that i I don't know
0: they say it's in that what everything that's happening is it's happening so it's natural yeah it just scares the shit out of me right a lot of it yeah a whole lot of it. Well,
1: I think the question that we have to ask ourselves is, is that, you know, um, in the past, when you look at um, the adaptations we've made or the technological innovations we've made, we made them with the understanding that we were evolving. We were, we were adapting tools and processes that would help us to survive as the fittest, right? Right. And so I don't... I What I worry about is that we're not honestly asking ourselves whether or not these adaptations are actually helping us to evolve and survive better. Right. If we're Uh, not just kind of blindly adopting them for reasons of um, laziness or...
0: Instant gratification. Instant
1: gratification. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I I think a lot of people are not asking that.
1: You know. I mean, it's it's how I feel about plastic, basically. I'm trying to... um, now it sounds totally crazy, but I'm trying to eliminate plastic from my life. Just not consume
0: well, it anymore. Like things that you buy that are encased in plastic. Yeah,
1: I mean, there's still... Like
0: little Keurig <laughs> fucking oh, coffee. Oh, yeah, no, I don't use those. Yeah, I use yeah, those, but no. I was dating a girl about a year ago who... Yeah, <laughs> she was not... She's like, that is such a waste. Yeah. Like, and it is. Right. But I didn't even think about it until I was dating her yeah. who's a... You know.
1: So, petrochemicals are basically in every single thing that you would buy cheaply at Target. Anything, whether right. it's whether it's your face wash, which I don't use anymore, right. um, shampoo, you know, cosmetics, drugs, um, furnishings, everything. Um, so, my rule of thumb at this point is, um, you know, I'll buy it used. I'll buy plastic things used, but new things at this point, I'm trying to. Um, but anyway, so that's, that, but that's just a, that's an example of, um, you know, a lot of people would argue, well, you know, the availability of plastic in manufacturing has made it so much easier for us to consume things. It's so much cheaper, you know? Yeah. Well, we didn't, did we need to consume all those extra things, right. you know,
0: probably not. I mean,
1: do you need to go to target every week and buy all that fucking shit that you buy? No, you do not.
0: You know? Right. People like their shit, man. I mean,
1: and a lot of it is food, too. It's like a lot of that plastic goes into manufacturing, quote-unquote, food. Yeah. Instead of just fucking buying vegetables. Right. You know? Right. Just go out to the store and buy fresh vegetables and grains and actually cook some food in a metal pot.
0: Yeah. A lot of people you don't know? do that. No. I cook, uh, you know, 85%, 90% of, the, of my meals. So that's, you know, but it's still shit comes in
1: plastic packages, and right.
0: packages. And
1: well, that's where you get like on my level of crunchy. So I belong to a co-op and I bring my reusable bags.
0: Yeah.
1: And if I go to the produce section and I get some broccoli, I don't put it in a plastic bag. Just right. go straight into the cart. You know, I mean, with the exception of, you know, the bulk bins. Uh well the bulk bins I try to bring the plastic bags I already had from the last time I was at the bulk bin and they already have a sticker with the number on it and um
0: that's uh, smart
1: uh mushrooms are one of the only things that I put in the plastic bag you know um but, yeah, I mean, that's why I would never shop at a store like Trader Joe's. I don't know what it's like now, but when it was all the rage back in the day, I would go in there and it's like, okay, well, I want one tomato. Well, no, I'm going to get four tomatoes it's in this cardboard thing wrapped in plastic. Yeah. You know, yeah. how is this supposed to be? And people had this idea that that was supposed to be like a cool, eco-friendly store
0: or something. Right. And it's like
1: everything there was in package. Everything.
0: So. That one's loose. You can't buy a single right. anything.
1: Um, So I try to eliminate packaging. I try to, you know, and for that reason, a lot of times I'll make a choice not to order something on Amazon that I can go down to the store and get um, locally. Because a lot of packaging goes into Amazon deliveries. You know, I mean, I'm sure you've had them. You get this big, giant cardboard box full of stuffing for a box of
0: pencils. Yeah. You know. It's weird. Yeah. That that is a weird thing.
1: And that is the cheapness of the manufacturing process. Right. It's cheaper to do that, than, right. you know.
0: It's weird how that is, but that's true. And the more you're doing it, the cheaper it is. The more yeah. bulk of you know. Yeah. You bought ten thousand boxes, so they right. were, you know a dime each or whatever yeah. the fuck. Yeah. It's just a crazy world, mm-hmm. and it just makes you wonder. So, what is the solution? what do you think
1: yeah i mean i think the solutions are and um, is there
0: solutions yeah I don't absolutely know. you think I mean, so
1: yeah there are solutions. lay it on me okay what so first thing um find, you know take the time to understand what the things you consume are made of and how they came to be sure. what is it you know most people can't answer the question of what it is you know they go and they buy some, like, cheap shelf at Target, and they think it's wood because it's been manufactured to have a look and feel <laughs> and of wood. And,
0: like, yeah. and there's
1: actually no wood in it, uh-uh. you know? Um,
0: Most of them get sprayed. Oh, yeah. It's like a, a spray, and then it hardens. Yeah. And then there's your table.
1: It's just... It's just
0: Particle boards like that. They, right. They spit it out, it dries, and then...
1: So just asking yourself a question, yeah. what is this thing um, and do I actually need it, you know? And I mean, honestly, it's that simple. Like, if you started with just that, with every person asking before they buy something, what is this product made of? Like, literally, what is it made? Where did it come from in nature, Right. you know? Like, not like... I mean, I don't think that the majority of people even understand what plastic is or understand how...
0: The chemicals that are in there? What?
1: It's oil. It's petrochemical. It's it's petroleum. Petroleum. Right. But, like, I don't think people understand that. The plastic is oil. Right. And... And I don't think that anybody has even... That a lot of people have um, a good understanding of the scope of its uses in your everyday life right and and the things that concern me a lot are the um cosmetic products and the things that go into the water supply that are ruining our
0: oceans yeah. you know the
1: microbeads. well that
0: a lot of people you know you get cancer and shit yeah from shit that's in plastic right They'll be like, I was gonna get, I was gonna get my daughter some shoes, like I don't know, six months ago, or some slippers or some shit. And then like, it has this big warning on it, and it says like, uh, chemicals in, oh my in in this shoes are known to, by the state of California to oh cause cancer. God. And I'm like, well, I'm like and they're right?
1: children's shoes, right? I'm like, right.
0: I'm okay, I'm not gonna yeah. buy those. And then like, everything that was there said that, on right? Me. But I was like, what the. Okay.
1: So what is an actual real pair of shoes made out of? Well, if you were to go and buy a pair of shoes the way that they were made before plastic existed, they would be a lot more expensive because they take a lot more time. They're handcrafted. Right. Right. And they're whatever it is. And then, okay. So then you say, well, I can't afford that. I'm a working class person. Well, maybe you only need one pair of shoes. Maybe so. You know, Maybe Hat your and the kid. The far
0: left wouldn't like it because it's probably an animal skin.
1: Well, but maybe your kid doesn't need the shoes luck. with the flashlights on them. Maybe not. That's got the frozen characters on them. That's gonna like you know make them slide. You know you know what I mean. I don't know. It's just, for me. It's by asking the first question, what is it made of? You end up making choices to consume less, and then everything you have is more valuable.
0: That actually makes sense. <laughs>
1: Um, and then, and then that, and that there are profound effects to living that way. You know, I mean, if everybody even just tried living that way, just 5%, I mean, I'm just throwing a number out there, you know, the shift that it would have in,
0: in, it would change things drastically in the
1: way that our entire ecosystem is, um, evolving. it just, it's just asking that question. What is this, you know? and where does it go when i throw it in the trash people rely way too much on this concept of recycling which is in and of itself an incredibly energy intensive process and um and
0: uh and how much shit that actually gets thrown out is biodegradable you know what i mean right they say it is but is it really And is it like within 10 years or is it like 10,000, ten thousand years, you know, yeah, you know, you know what I mean. Because it was ten thousand, doesn't matter. Yeah. It's going to be shit piled up on the ground all over before you know what I mean. Before the. Right other shit's dissolved into the earth
1: so i'm having a baby i'm expecting to have a baby soon and um my understanding is that newborns go through about 80 diapers a week yeah and i read that a diaper one diaper can take 250 years to biodegrade
0: isn't that crazy
1: think about one child 80 diapers a week 250 years for each one and all of the children using diapers all over the world. I mean it's insane. That is insane to me. And a lot of people will say to me like uh, all of those diapers, Emily, how yours aren't going to make any fucking difference. Right. Like why are you being so fucking anal? Why don't you just relax a little bit? The world Who says is not so? Oh, my own parents. well, my, well, my mom, yeah, you know. Yeah. But not just her. Um my all kinds of people around me, who I believe, would rather believe that their choices don't matter because it's a way for them to not have to do the hard work of making the right choice
0: and take responsibility for. And, and so
1: they take it out on me and they say, "What you know? What is the big deal? It's just this once, you know." Or
0: but what do they care that you're gonna you're gonna do like a diaper service thing anyways with cloth diapers? What, what do they give a shit? Because it, why does anyone give because, a shit about what someone else does?
1: Because it makes them feel more convicted.
0: Yeah, I think you're right.
1: Yeah, because yeah. they feel more convicted that right. they are doing the wrong thing. Right, and so they would rather try to convince you that your choice doesn't really make a difference. Weird. And um, and I get that all the time from people very close to me all the time. You know, and I refuse to give in. I don't care. If I am the last person on this earth who cares about how long my diaper is going to biodegrade, you know, I I have to, I have to make the right choice, you know, and I have to try to make the right choice on a regular basis all the time. Right.
0: And if that's what you want to do, that's what you should do. It's just weird to me how people get but oh, that, yeah. it, it comes back to them. It always comes oh, back to them. Oh, it's
1: projection. Yeah, yeah 100%. It's, it's so much projection. Yeah. I mean, and it has I, nothing to
0: do with you. And, and because I'm so,
1: because I, because I have kind of developed such a disciplined approach to consumption, and it's so sort of antithetical to the ethos of um, modern American life. Um, it's it stands out, and um, people project yeah they fucking project and i am not a person who's going around saying you know you should be doing this or you should be doing that i'm not but people just
0: you're just like oh hey this is how i'm gonna do this yeah
1: yeah and and then they just are like basically they just tell me to relax it's like oh my god why can't you just relax it's not about relaxing it's about going to sleep at night knowing that i've made the right choices right it's what i want to do leave me alone yeah but especially with the baby, I'm already getting so much projection from people who just like, were you, I guess you were there the other night when I was, I was kind of defensive about it because I've, I've been getting it a lot where yeah. it's just like, I don't need all this stuff. You know, everyone's like, well, you're going to, you know, you're going to need so much stuff. Who was, I like, didn't
0: hear that. I was well. Like,
1: oh, well, I've been getting it a lot, you, you know, just, from you family. know just how do you, how do you expect to do this without a car? Well, the way that every woman did it for the last gazillion years years before (laughs) cars were invented a hundred years ago. Right. (laughs) I'm going to do it that way. You know. How
0: are you going to do this (sighs) without that? Yeah. Well, people rely so much on technology and having everything done for them.
1: Well, it's just all the things that they bought that um, I'm not going to buy. You know, that they, that I I don't know. It's just... I'm surprised
0: you haven't gone into hunting your own food. Well. Tell me you haven't thought of it.
1: Hunting my own food, yeah.
0: I mean, I'd have to you, buy a gun, right? You, if well, I was gonna hunt, bow and arrow, or spear, or something, <laughs> or go fishing. I don't fucking no, know. I mean,
1: I don't need to be a farmer, I live in an, in the agricultural heartland. Of yeah, America. you can get some
0: good shit here, That's and, pretty
1: I, and it's a big reason why I do live here, right? You know, um, we are in Sacramento, you can right go now. to like
0: local farmers around here and just get like half a cow.
1: Well, I don't need to. I, I go. I'm a member of the co-op, and the co-op is sourced, you know, as much as possible locally. I mean, occasionally, I will buy some blueberries from Mexico, but I generally am buying in season, right. you know, and um, and so um, I don't think I'm not necessarily a person who thinks that everyone needs to be a farmer, you know. No. Um. But I think if you live in a commu- in a diverse community of makers of people who are doing different things, then there'll be a farmer, yeah. and there'll be a shoemaker, right. and there'll, and there'll be a painter, and they can all kind of work and, and yeah. live
0: together and use each other for whatever you need.
1: Yeah, to. and I mean that's what um, <clears throat> traditional Main Street USA was about, and. Um, and that's what plastic manufacturing has destroyed, yeah. in my opinion. I think one it comes things, back to that. You I mean, know? that's
0: definitely uh, plastic. It's definitely one of the things you can put on that list. Yeah, it's uh, a list like, of things that are just yeah. made in the world
1: that just make it so much easier for Walmart, you know, warehouses to be the more practical choice than having people make things and you know having uh-huh. farmers and it's not just farmers either. There's a I just discovered down the street there's a, a beekeeping store that is wonderful. Ooh. It has all the materials you need for keeping bees and then they had everything that you would need for making your own candles and wow. you know, local honey and things like yeah. that. And I mean just like
0: I don't like bees because they sting you, but I like candles and honey.
1: I know, but the fact that that, so that here in this it. community yeah. there is a store that exists right. like that, yeah. you know. Uh-huh. Um that I was really excited to go into. And, the you know, the woman that worked there, you know, spent 20 minutes with me talking to me about how to make candles and the different ways I could do it. And um,
0: That's actually pretty badass.
1: Yeah, you know. I
0: like that. <laughs> I've been watching this, uh, that Life Below Zero show. You ever seen that one? No. It's those people that follows, like, four people around who live in Alaska. Oh. And they just fucking, I mean, these guys do... Everything by themselves. Yeah. I mean, one guy literally built everything. His cabin. I mean, everything he has, he yeah. basically built. Uh, other uh, there's no roads. You can't get to anywhere. Everyone hunts for their own food. Yeah. It's just fascinating how yeah. these people and they are choosing to live like this. Right. Every single one of them chooses. Yeah. One guy is literally on a lake in this little cabin that's probably half the size of this room. That he just it looks like shit just built it up. He just goes out and he hunts and he yeah you know, bathes and in, in, in the and in the he boils some water and splashes yes. it on himself to wash his shit and it's just fascinating seeing yeah. people like that and they always talk about people people in the lower forty eight this and that and this the and lower forty eight yeah. yeah and the uh, it's it's a really good show yeah it's, it's very interesting
1: so I I guess I haven't I mean I certainly fantasize about that a lot and I think a lot of people. Like me do And I think there You see that on TV a lot With these kind of um, A friend and my Me and a friend talk about it a lot This kind of trend of You know people wanting tiny houses Oh right You know these kind of And I'm encouraged by that kind of stuff Because at least for me It means that people are thinking About simplifying and consuming less Uh Um, I haven't gotten to a point yet Where I would really feel like you know, that's the life for me. I like living in a city. Yeah, I'm not either I like but living it's, it's
0: interesting to watch, I thought that
1: yeah much. but I do but but I've also like <clears throat> I've also gone into the wilderness a lot more than the average person. Right. On be, on extended journeys, yeah, you, you know, have, on like kind you've of done your sit, fair amount. on big um,
0: of exploration. Yeah, on yeah.
1: And trips that were not necessarily about just going to another place and just like checking it off my list, but were really much more about going into the wilderness and just kind of like. I'm still
0: yeah, shocked you went to Peru and didn't do any ayahuasca.
1: Right. <laughs> you know, that's that's like a fucking tourist trap, man.
0: It is now. I don't I mean, know when you were it's down so there. I don't weird think
1: it how was. It, oh, no, it absolutely was, it? was. Yeah, as soon as you get there. Really? It's like you It's like you might... like. It, it's not so bad that they're at the airport, but it's like basically you get out of the airport and it's like ayahuasca. Oh, wow. You know? Have you come here to find your spiritual self? Oh, really? They are just... I mean, and it's oh, like... they're eating it up. The thing is, is that um, American, and not just American, Germans travel a lot too, and, and Europeans in general, Australia, Travel a lot, yeah. but the Western tourist um, has infiltrated almost every every place on Earth at this point, and there is a gimmick that is available um, in any place for the uh, Western consumer to um, you know participate in or experience that they can take home and say was an authentic um, you know. Trinket or token of experience that they're going to keep with them. It's going to be a memory of a lifetime of their, you know, big exposure to some other place when the whole thing has been crafted for, you know, has been manufactured and developed specifically to profit from that stupid American tourist, right. you know and the ayahuasca trips in my mind were just part and parcel of that and it was so obvious you know I mean you just get I pitched guess if
0: you see it like that yeah. you
1: get pitched on them everywhere you know yeah. and um you know uh I did go up into the jungle um and worked on some farms um but I uh was not doing any drugs it's kind of a turn off I did, I did stay on a farm up um as far north as I got, that was closest to where they would do that ayahuasca stuff. It's kind of I was at the, just at the entrance to the Amazon, and um, I didn't really go deep, um, but I was definitely in cocaine country. Did you chew
0: some coca leaves? I
1: well, a lot I did when I was trekking because at high altitudes it really helps. Right. Yeah, but it's not. Um, it doesn't. It's not like being on blow.
0: It's more like. Um like a coffee stimulant? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Um, but helps with high altitudes. And I did um, have altitude sickness. Um, I was on a trek uh, that was um, uh, to Machu Picchu, but it was like a roundabout way. Right. And, um, and I. Did I pass out? I almost passed out. Jesus. Yeah, at the top. And they had to. Um, the guide had to. Um, everyone had to leave me behind essentially I couldn't I was losing consciousness but you made it up there though? no the last 50 meters I had to and here's another example of like how even when you're in the wilderness virtually everywhere um has become a a marketplace for tourists um so so I'm at the I'm at the top of this mountain in snow you know it's like ice icy peaks cragged peaks and I'm with a group of about twenty people trekking. It's a five-day trek, and it's the second day. And this is we're at the at the top, and we're gonna round this mountain to uh-huh. get back down to Machu Picchu on the other side. Uh-huh. And um. And I had al- altitude sickness pretty bad, and I had watched a buddy, a guy who I'd been tr- walking with the day before, had been. Had lost consciousness and been taken out on a stretcher and was going back to town, and it was a dangerous situation, right um, life threatening situation. Yeah, that's legit. So I was already shaken up about that.
0: What's the altitude you're at at this point? Oh
1: god, I don't remember. I don't remember what it was, and it was all in the metric system, so it's harder oh, for me to yeah think about the in our rest terms. Of the world. Yeah, <laughs> but um, high enough, you know, high enough that I was Uh, you know uh, losing consciousness Uh. and um, everyone else had to go on ahead of me and um and and the guide was trying to give me some kind of aromatherapy to keep me awake to keep me you know just was, wasn't working so we're up in the middle of nowhere there's no one else around not a soul in sight and here I am about to pass out and lo and behold out of nowhere comes a horse and for only 50 solace this horse is going to take me to the top you know, but you could tell that this is a local person who has his horse there, who's ready to go, and you will pay the price. Right. It's not like um, this has never happened before. This probably happens every single trip. Right. There's an American like me who uh-huh. gets sick, and they have um, a marketplace right. in, in place. Right. And for me, I'll go home and I'll tell that story, and it'll be this authentic experience like, oh, and then out of nowhere, this guy just shows up with a horse and carries me the last 50 meters up. No, he's there all the time, and that's how he makes a living.
0: For sure. 100%. You know? Did you get on that horse?
1: Uh, Yeah. (laughs) Fuck yeah. And that was scarier. (laughs) yes. That was scarier than anything, because now, I mean, we're talking about really narrow, jagged pathway on these peaks. Right. Where I am slumped over on a horse, so I'm off the ground even more, and Mm. there's a... I'm not used to horses. It's Mm -hmm. like being on a motorcycle. Right. So like I'm looking over the edge of Was there a
0: saddle at least? (sighs) Or is it just on the fucking raw ass horse?
1: It might have been a it was not a big horse, you know. Like a donkey. (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) I mean I was barely conscious. Um God, was it like a mule? But is a mule a donkey?
0: I think so. Yeah, just they're just a little less horse, is what I think it is. A little less horse. <laughs> yeah, it's like a.
1: Was there a saddle? I have no idea. I have no that's idea.
0: Definitely scarier without a saddle because you're just like, I've been on a few horses in my day and.
1: God, I can't even, I don't think I had enough consciousness to like no. know. All I know I is that I was fucking terrified.
0: Yeah. Okay.
1: Because, because at least on the ground, I'm on my feet, you know, I have a better sense of my space and proportion. Yeah. And now I'm near passing out and I'm swaying back and forth on a horse on the edge of a mountain. And so, yeah, that was a little terrifying. Yeah. But I wasn't going to, I wasn't going to make it otherwise. Right. You
0: know? Yeah.
1: Um, but anyways, yeah. So chewed a lot of coca leaves and, um, and, and had you have some
0: stories about it
1: and I oh that was
0: just the first trek you know I went on. what I mean I went
1: on other treks
0: you went on all kinds of shit I went on another you went on a lot of I went. shit
1: I climbed to the top of the highest peak in Peru the second highest peak in South America that was a lot of fun but on that one um, I you know did what I do which is I didn't want to stay with the group I wanted to go on ahead by myself got lost in my own world and then literally got lost and didn't think that you know I went in I had to go into survival mode thought I was going to have to be surviving overnight at glacial temperatures, you know, like on my own. And, um, Jesus, yeah, that was pretty crazy. And the guide was not happy with me. I I had, I had almost given up and it was getting to be dusk and, um, I hadn't seen another soul in hours and I had found, um, I had gone back up to where I knew that the trail had existed. Uh And there was, like, an abandoned outhouse that must have been, like, 100 years old that was really just, like, aluminum siding on, two, on like two sides and nothing, and then, like, concrete with holes, you know? So it provided a little bit of shelter. Right. And I had decided that that's where I would keep shelter. And, um... And I knew that there was like wild horses and other kinds of wild animals up there, and it was just not, you know, it was just I didn't have any food. You didn't want to do it. And I, it was just yeah. <laughs> so I was, I'm gonna, I'm gonna give this one more shot. So I went out to this precipice where it was kind of like this giant rock that overlooked a huge valley, and I felt like it was the spot where I could would be as much, as much exposed to all the, the uh, this valley where I could be seen from several different mountaintops. Uh-huh. And I took my rain poncho and tied it to a giant stick, and just waved it for half an hour. Just stood there waving.
0: And so and my
1: my guide, that's how he found me. Yeah, came down this mountain. I mean, I wasn't even close on the trail. Like, really? I wouldn't. No, there's no way that I would have. Because w- when we went down the next day, there I would have gone. There was. I would have never. I was way off course.
0: Kind of scary. Think about it.
1: Oh yeah, it was it was it was big time. It was big time, and it was all completely my own fault because I didn't want to stay with these, you know, this group. I was it was a very small, it was a fairly small group. I'd say six or seven people, but um, uh, you know, they'd stop every ten minutes to take pictures. Oh. And they want to talk all the time. And
0: yeah, it's just annoying. I annoying just wanted.
1: People. I had just. I wanted to be lost in my own world of you know thoughts right. and wilderness. So,
0: Wow. Yeah. What did the guide say?
1: He didn't want to say anything. He was annoyed as shit. Yeah, you know? probably. Because, you know, it was dinner time. Yeah. Everybody was fucking waiting for me. You know, totally like nobody really wanted to talk to me after that, you know.
0: Understandable. Yeah, <laughs> Totally, you know. But,
1: I mean, uh, also understandable on my part. I was frustrated, you know. There was a German guy there who... Was one of these people who had flown into Lima, had like six days, was going to try to go do everything. Oh, right. And... Was a chain smoker, was overweight, was just totally in a completely different mindset. I had already been in town. I had been in the country at that point maybe for two months already. Right. And just didn't have a lot of patience for this kind of. And because of him, because he was on a schedule, we had all bought and paid for a four day trip. And we were going to have to make a three day trip for this guy because he had to get back. Well, how you does know, that even work? Because they just were trying to get a bunch of people in. and You know, they want to take the money. So they just say yes to
0: everyone. Do they give you your a 25% payback uh, only from four I, days to three days?
1: Only because I raised a lot of hell. Yeah. You know, I went in there and I raised a lot of hell afterwards. Yeah. I would. But they weren't, you know, but that was only because I had the capacity in Spanish to do so. Oh, right. They would have gotten away with it otherwise because most, you know, it's like. Yeah.
0: Tourists. And yeah. Yeah.
1: So. Um, but I was frustrated. This guy couldn't keep up because he's a chain smoker and he's out of shape. And he's just here taking off another thing on his bucket list. Right.
0: You have no business and, going up a fucking mountain.
1: Yeah. You know? And I mean, it's like... And this is a place where you have to be prepared. Yeah. Um, and I didn't want to wait for him. Yeah. I just did not want... I mean, I would literally... I would walk and then I would sit and wait for like 45 fucking minutes for this guy to... You know? And <sighs> it was just...
0: And the other people didn't care that were there? What? They just um, didn't know to care? Well,
1: well they were in between. Mm. It was like me at one extreme and this guy at the other extreme. Mm-hmm. And then the rest of them, you know, a lot of... Uh, it, that particular group was like four girls in their 20s who, uh, you know, just more about the experience and they're all going to become friends and they're going to travel more yeah. together and they're going to stay in touch and, you know, they're having a different experience than I was having, which was right. me... I, I i'm going up there and i want to like just be right. you know
0: um be one yeah with the earth yeah with gaia with mother gaia
1: fuck yeah you know <laughs> yeah
0: nothing wrong with that
1: we get on the next day on that trip i'll never forget we get up to this most gorgeous place this where this happened where i um almost you know got left where i got lost mm-hmm the um logo for paramount pictures yeah that mountain uh-huh. it's there that's uh, a real thing right and that's where we were um and uh so we get up to the to this glacial peak where there's like this little glacial lake and it's just like the most serene most beautiful place ever i mean you just can't imagine being any farther away from from the world right you know and just gorgeous and um everyone gets there and immediately starts posing for their yoga om picture oh lord right where they sit in their yoga posture and they appear as though they are meditating on you know contemplations of life oh lord and they get their picture taken from all the different angles and it's gonna be now their new facebook picture right and and so you know I let them do their thing whatever and I'm just sitting there and the guide is like is immediately as soon as pictures are done we're leaving. And that was how a lot of these trips would go. Right. It would be like, okay, now get out, take your pictures. Right. When you're done taking your pictures we're leaving. And it was like there wasn't any time built in for actually just being. Right. And if you aren't and he at one point he's like, "Okay, it's time to go, Emily. Like you're not taking pictures." So and I'm like, "What is is that what we exist to do? Is just document everything? It's like we can't just be in this moment, you
0: know. Is this a local guy?
1: Yeah, yeah, the the guy. He's a, is, the yeah. guy's local. But like. I mean, yeah, they're well, they're Peruvian, maybe, right. you know. But right, I mean, right, I think yeah. the point is is that um, so many people are traveling now in order to document the fact that they've traveled, right. rather than to actually just take something in and be open to an, an experience in its authentic form. Right. They've already preconceived what they want the image to look like on right. Facebook. Right. And they're really just going there to stage the picture.
0: Yeah.
1: I've asked so that many seems people, accurate. Yeah. Yeah. I mean there was a guy that I was staying I I showed up at a hostel And he was just beside himself because he he had lost the battery to his camera. He had a really fancy Canon, Uh you know, DSLR. And he was from Germany. And um, he had, like, maybe 36 hours left in country. And he was going to spend the entire time looking for that battery. I mean, he was going to spend his last full day in this town the whole day searching for where he could find this battery and i stopped him at one point and i was just like you know you have so little time left before you have to go home why don't you just let it go and just go come out you know
0: he already got shots from all the other days right yeah.
1: yeah you know he'd already been in there He's maybe a week or two or something day. i don't know but Fuck maybe man. he only had maybe he only had 48 hours in this one town and you know it was right. like it wasn't going to be documented right And he at least was honest about it. You know, at least he was honest about the fact that, like, he tried to couch it in terms of being, you know, a photographer. And, you know, everybody always wants to think that, like, the reason they're doing it is because they're really into the art of photography. Right. No, that is not why you're doing it. Right. And I would ask a lot of people, I've asked people this a lot, I've said, you know, if you could go anywhere in the world, but you wouldn't be allowed to document it or share it on social media, would you still go? You know, or like, it, or if they say they're going to go somewhere you know, or they're going to do some big journey or something, you say, like, if you weren't allowed, if nobody could ever know that you did this, would you still put in the money? You know, people will save money for a sure. year or two years, three years, you know. Would you still put in the effort and the time and the money? And I don't think a lot of people would.
0: Probably not. They want to be able to say they did this and yeah. prove that they did this. And there's a the picture that shows it. <sighs>
1: Because with all the travel that I've done in in Latin America, mostly South and Central America, I find so few people who are actually in the moment and just enjoying themselves and experiencing, they are colonizing, they're appropriating, they're colonizing a space, you know, Uh by they're taking up the space and they're documenting it. And they're saying this space exists here for me to show that I am in it and for me to show all my friends right. what I've done, you know?
0: Uh-huh. That's pretty common.
1: I don't even want to travel anymore because I fucking hate tourists so much. Ugh. Because I hate what's happened to, you know, and don't not wanting to participate in it, wanting to be there, but wanting to be separate from it, uh-huh. and just the conflict that exists in me for that reason, right. you know? How do I be an authentic wanderer? without participating in this kind of grotesque
0: he can't, colonization, you, you know? Unless you got the money to hire a personal guy the whole time and tell him to shut the fuck up and let me look at this mountain.
1: No, it's the opposite. Unless you have the ability to go on your own by yourself that and too. not participate in these things. Sure, that. you know? I mean, But then
0: you would risk leaving the trail and exactly. sitting in an yeah. outhouse. <clears throat> right. So... You would need the money to get a personal guy and tell him to shut the fuck up yeah. and let me look at this goddamn mountain.
1: Right. <laughs> totally.
0: Yeah, I can see that's frustrating, though.
1: Oh, yeah. You know, and when I was younger, I was exactly like them. It was before social media, so I didn't have, you know, when I think about the time I spent living in Buenos Aires, like... I have a photo album that is on the shelf over there right. you know but that's it you mean yeah. you
0: didn't scan them and put them up on Facebook <laughs> no <laughs> get a scanner you know what I mean them, yeah. no
1: I did not right. um, and there was
0: a you cool- probably should there'd probably be some good throwbacks in there oh my
1: god and me so one of my oldest friends who I met down there and um, we took a trip to Brazil for a month we had a disposable I had a disposable camera
0: right <laughs> and
1: um, took it in to get it developed and had spoiled the picture somehow oh, and gee. they were ruined. And so we have... And we talk about this to this day because from the t- from that was in 2002 or 2001, 2002. Mm-hmm. And now in this world that we live in now, he, he lived in Brooklyn with me as well. And um, we just absolutely marvel at this experience we had that nobody in the entire world will ever know anything about it except the two of us as it lives in our memory. Right. There is not one single documented proof that it ever happened. And so as long as he and I know that it happened, it happened. It happened. But there is no other evidence. Right. Nothing. You know, we don't have... There was no, like, oh, yes. Apple wallet passport thing that has the receipts from the bus tickets. Right. You know, there's nothing. There's no... Not one single picture or... Check in, you know. And sometimes we look at each other, and we have to tell each other, we have to remind each other of these stories because we're so enthralled with this idea that we did this. I mean, for a month, right? You know, and we went all over the country and had great time. And once it leaves our memory, it will just be something that may or may not have happened, you know. And there's something so fun and special about it's exotic.
0: Yeah, Yeah.
1: it's like pornography. You know,
0: yeah. Huh. Yeah. Interesting. Well,
1: I guess it was easier for me to talk than I thought it would be.
0: <laughs> yeah. We're at two hours twenty minutes. All
1: right, <laughs> that's probably enough, huh?
0: All right, yeah. So we can uh, we can we can end it now. Um, yeah. Well, thanks for doing this. It was uh, it was sure. nice to see you. We haven't seen each in quite a bit.
1: I so. know. And you're not that far away.
0: I know. Isn't that weird? <laughs>
1: My name is Emily Faye Calhoun, and we are in Sacramento, California, and the year is 2018. It's
0: 2018 now. <laughs> yeah.
1: The year is the future.
0: The year we're in the future. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm glad to, uh, we got a chance to do this, because it's kind of cool. So Yeah. Get a chance to catch up, too, so. Yeah. Awesome. Okay. We'll do it again, maybe sometime.
1: Well, uh, goodbye, America.
0: There we go. Goodbye, America. Okay. All right. There you go.